Digital Drift, episode 36, recorded July 20th, 2014, Transformers Prime. This week on New Century, Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits performs Lieutenant James Buckner, a reunified state scout who describes to us his encounter with a savage creature now known as a Wendigo. That episode is available a week early for patrons of $3 or more, and last week's episode, number one, is now available for everyone to see on YouTube. If you love our shows and want to keep them coming, then the best way to support us is by joining in with the rest of the patrons. If you aren't able to throw down any dollars, what you absolutely can do is spread this project around all over the internet and amongst everyone you know who you think might like this. The way Patreon works, nobody will find our page unless they already know it's there. We've had a great first week with 37 patrons. So to the other 1,463 of you guys and girls listening now, now is your chance to not only make the second week even better, but to get in on the ground floor of a truly epic steampunk web series. Welcome back to the surprisingly long-running, considering I didn't even want to do one of them, Digital Drift Transformers podcast series. I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Our guests tonight are Neil Taylor of Gameburst. I'm talking about one that doesn't suck, thank God! Miraculous. Jerome McIntosh of Gameburst. Good day, sir. Gravity badger. <laughs> Andrew Pidiatsky of the Digital Drift community. Hi there. And Mike Hearn of Walter the Wicked returning after the Revenge of the Fallen podcast. I think this was your reward for my time putting in. <laughs> time on for good behavior? There you go. Back when We Hate Movies were on this show, I went off on a rant about how I couldn't get passionate about Transformers like I do Star Wars or Avengers. Because while there are plenty of examples of how this franchise can be done wrong... There are so few that can truly be said to have been done right enough to appeal to discerning adults. There's okay and quite good stuff like the first live-action film and the 1986 animated movie. But where's the Wolverine and the X-Men or the spectacular Spider-Man? As much of a soft spot as I have for the original Generation 1 cartoons, and I do use that label correctly here, they are laughably simple, shabbily delivered and poorly written when set against the likes of Avatar and Justice League Unlimited. It's a distinction I don't usually make, but animated shows are not the same as cartoons. The difference is somewhat intangible, but I think it may come down to how much product sales impact on storyline and character growth. Centurions was a cartoon. Batman the Animated Series was an animated show. 
this isn't a binary thing, though. It's more of a sliding scale, which is worthy of debate and enti- indeed an entire show in and of itself. And yes, until Beast Wars started focusing more on overarching storytelling, Transformers was far closer to the cartoon end of that scale. Okay, now that all the diehard fans of G1 who won't hear a word said against that period have turned off their iPods... Hello! (laughs) Let's get down to what eventually turned out to be the luminous combination of elements that Sharon and I and many of our listeners require to get a great entertainment experience. It's called Transformers Prime. It started in 2010 and it ran for two and a half seasons before being closed out and it's going to be replaced in 2015 by the younger skewing Transformers animated and Teen Titans style Robots in Disguise. Oh. <laughs> I don't know, I've got misgivings about that. I don't want to condemn it straight away. I think many Is of the Teen team Titans or Teen Titans Go style? I don't discern it- between the two of them but obviously from the sounds of it, Go does not make fans of the original Teen Titans happy so... Let's hope it's closer to the original Teen Titans if it's like anything. Because there's a lot of fans of Transformers animated. You know, it's, apparently it gets quite in-depth later on, but mm. it left me cold. Now, if you listen to our review of Green Lantern, the animated series, it's that level of animation style and detail, craftsmanship of production, and focus on storytelling and character that we're talking about. Now, we're going to look at Season 1 of Prime tonight. And it's focused on just a few Waterbots and Decepticons and their crucial relationship with the human characters that shapes the series. It is a remarkably well-blended combination of the best of elements from Transformers history with the key characters of Generation 1 front and centre and a ton of detail and references to keep longtime fans happy coupled with the epic sweep and musical flavour as well as the robot design ethic from the live-action movies, with more visually appealing, chunky, armoured bots rather than the endlessly twirling, slow-mo, psychopathic, insectoid mess from the movies. It is also, in fact, rather similar to the War for Cybertron and Fall of Cybertron games for 360 and PS3, with which it shares the chronology and universe of, with Prime being what happened when the bots reached Earth. Add to this fan favourites Bulkhead from Animated, Arachnid from Beast Wars, RC from the 86 movie onwards of Gen 1, and best of all, that kind of depth of character reached only ever before in the best of the Marvel, Dreamwave and IDW comic series. Now, for the majority of you who haven't watched this yet, the first season begins with a five-episode mini-series which sets up all the major players – The bots have been on Earth a few years, having come here from the war-ravaged Cybertron, rather the same place they were at the beginning of the second movie, which had just launched as this went into development in 2009. Now, Notably, this series was produced by Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman, writers of the first movie, and Orsi went on record as saying that with this series he could do what he wasn't able to with the movies. Now, we interpret that as to make something with heart and substance. (laughs) hiding out in an old abandoned government silo inside a mountain in is it nevada yep yeah jasper yeah. yeah yeah in nevada and liaising with an irascible agent named fowler who attempts to keep their presence a secret from the populace the six remaining autobots are against the wall Megatron has been gone several years, leaving Starscream leading the Decepticons, which notably include an army of Stormtrooper-style vehicons, and the Autobots are vastly outnumbered and close to losing the war for good. 
a scenario made perfectly clear by the opening moments of the first episode in which Cliffjumper is captured and killed. Three human teenagers, Jack, Miko and Raphael, cross paths with several Autobots who defend them from the crossfire of attacking Decepticons and are brought back to their base to ensure that they will not reveal the disguises that the Transformers are so keen to remain in. After various adventures, Optimus Prime allows the kids to pair up with Autobot protectors, principally to ensure their safety as they attempt to help the robotic extraterrestrials, but in narrative terms, to establish a strong group bond among them and contrast the bot's perspective with our own, juxtaposing the towering titans with the fragile but intrepid humans. Of course, Megatron does not stay gone forever, and over the course of 26 beautifully animated episodes, the fight to protect Earth and its people becomes increasingly more high stakes, culminating in a sci-fi extravaganza of a finale, steeped in Cybertronian lore that blew our minds. Okay, so what we're going to do is we've got bullet-pointed characters here, so I've not got any more uh, else to say of prepared material. I'll just throw out the characters, and you guys do what you can with them. So we'll start off with the impact of the death of Cliffjumper. And I'll just say before we start, this was meant to be at the end of season one. The the idea was going to be that they were going to build up this uh, second tier character to be like the one that all the kids loved. And then they were just going to kill him. And it was going to be like, oh my God, no one is safe. And the execs suggested, maybe bring it to the beginning. Now, normally I don't say... That's a great idea, execs. But that's actually a great idea, execs. It makes you worried from the very first episode that anything could happen and anyone could go. Because, you know, bear in mind, you know, if you just watch Gen 1, up until the Transformers movie, aside from Skyfire, who didn't even really properly die-die, all they did was sting each other with puny lasers. (laughs) So go for it. Death of Cliffjumper. Yeah. It's just like you said, it was absolutely a smart decision to start off with this because it shows that the Transformers have a mortality. Mm. And the framing of that whole scene of he's been captured, and it's, it's, it's a brutal killing. Mm. It Starscream t- effectively tears his heart out. Yeah. And they've gone for, they approach it like Samurai Jack did. They, because they're mechanical you can sort of amp up the violence a bit more and show a bit more mortality, mortality without um, running into issues with with um, with uh, ratings. Mm. They definitely um, amped it up. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's the biggest impact on RC throughout the season. We keep yeah. coming back yeah. to it throughout with um, when she's making arachnids, when she meets Starscream, that'd be it towards the end. Before he goes rogue, she's continually evolves her character and she's con- constantly coming back to it. Oh, speaking of the end, by the way, we're going to keep the uh, events of the last four episodes of this to a spoiler zone at the very, very end. Because basically, um, we're going to just act from now on like no one listening has seen this thing. That way, if you've, if you've seen it, you'll just be sort of nodding your head and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you haven't seen it, this is kind of like, this is how you do Transformers, folks. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll let you know. Like, it's probably best if you haven't seen it at all to go away before the very end because there is like a, there's a kind of awesome bit for those last few episodes which we don't really want to go into. So if you guys could all sort of like steer clear of those events, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
cool. Yep. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. RC is already mourning the death of uh, another one of her partners, um, as in soldier partners. Uh, Tailgate. Tail- Tailgate, yeah. Uh, who was, um, you know, hor- horribly as it, uh, tortured to death by um, uh, Arachnid, who's a, a transforming spider played by Gina Torres from Firefly. And... Um, she, it, it, that's informed on her character and the fact that Cliff Jumper is the next one and she's it 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 makes her I mean we'll talk about RC in a bit but it makes her overprotective of uh, the other characters especially Jack the uh and I'm I've just gone through these but my memory is failing me it was it was episode one that they did that right mm, Cliff Jumper yeah. bought it episode yeah. one that really that I mean, and that's probably part of where hopefully the executive's decision was coming from, because that that told you where this show was going and how it was going to be different aside from just being a new set of Transformers, because that's never we've lost. We lost uh, characters in Beast Wars, but there was never they it was never established. In fact, the first season of Beast Wars was, you know, kind of goofy and and, uh, it didn't really come into its own until the end of that season and later. Um, But this right off the bat. Um, said no. This is different. This stick around. This is going to be something different. And add to the fact that the you have the the whole morning scene where they stand atop the cliff and have a little burial site for them. It's like it hammers home that they're only like this small team, and to lose one person was not just a major blow emotionally, but also to their whole to their whole faction to what they're trying to accomplish. I was actually going to say one of the odd things as well is the fact who whose voice in that character. Re- so when you hear, who, yeah. you realize whose voice. It's basically The Rock. It's Dwayne Dwayne Johnson voicing yeah. him. Mm. You think, oh wow, this has got The Rock, and this is going to be awesome. And then they kill him. <laughs> if The he's Rock not a ca- can die, he, he, that, well, that's it. If, if you know, if old Rocky can die. Yeah, it's actually, re- and he plays it really well because I don't think I've seen him die in anything he does. Uh, technically, he died as the Scorpion King. Uh, special effects. It's speculation as to whether the, the rock was even part of that CG just crab thing. He lost a seven or nine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh god! I thought I was the only one that remembered that. <clears throat> um, watching it a sec- uh, second and third time, I, I just think Cliff, run! Don't fight these guys. You're completely outnumbered. He's, he's basically he's, he's cornered by stormtroopers. He goes in on the attack, and they overpower him. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a, a macro version of the fact that they are outnumbered and um, some of their number just don't have it in them to flee. It also sh- it it also sets up that even though there's more numbers of them, they are in terms of combat they are better. But the problem is, at the end of the day, sheer numbers will always overpower you. Mm. And the fact that you've got this lone soldier against a group of group and literally an army and their giant warship yeah it just hammers home how like how desperate their situation is when i uh came into it we i i came into it kind of blind and i hadn't really seen bulkhead or, or at least i didn't remember him and so uh, recognizing the rock's voice and and uh what happened i thought that they were just going to wharf him i thought that this was okay here it is it's the rocky's voice in him and they're gonna make him look really awesome and then beat him, and so that you know that you know this new threat of the the current Decepticons are actually a threat. So I was actually quite surprised when when they actually killed him because well you don't kill Warp, you just knock him down. <laughs> this also Starscream doing it, so it's like this is this is Starscream. He doesn't kill people; he's too incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> 
And there's also the main James, like main character, one of the main characters of G1. Yeah. So you've got Cliff Jumper. You know, I remember him being small but a really cocky, really headstrong, and he's mostly with Bumblebee and Braun and all that. And then he's curled off in the first episode. So yeah. like, wow, they are they are really serious. Also, to build on that, because um, I played before I watched the series, I played. Um, I was already playing like War of Cybertron, and obviously in in that series they introduce you to him and everything. So I'd obviously built up a bit of a connection with the character and the yeah. fact that he's just gone straight away. I I, I played uh, that bit of door, uh, Fall of Cybertron when you get to sneak around with Cliff after yes. I'd seen him die, and I was like, oh, every moment that I spend with you, Cliff, is precious. And he's actually really awesome. He's like a ninja in that. He, you know, he can't use his size, so he sneaks around and, uh, and does lots of great kind of stealth kills. But uh, to add insult to injury, they not only kill him, but they turn him into a zombie, then cut him in half, then he comes back again, then they explode a mine with him in it. Yeah. yeah. They, they kill him so many times. Yeah, they got a bit carried away on the whole killing him thing. Yeah. It's almost like Alec Trevelyan in Goldeneye. Let's drop <laughs> a thing on him now. They went to such lengths to create this great character um it's it's usually so easy to just create a, a sort of two-bit non-entity if the whole point is to kill them off mm-hmm. so the fact that they made him as close to fully rounded as one can be when the audience only gets to spend a short time with them they maybe just didn't want to waste him on only one death yeah. There's also, uh, you, you get to see a lot of the, uh, what's the name of this giant ship that the Decepticons travel around on? They call it the Nemesis as well. The Nemesis, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, the difference between the Decepticons in this effectively Imperial Star Destroyer and the Autobots hiding inside a rock. Again, it's a, it's a wonderful sort of uh, symbolic juxtaposition that the Autobots have gone to ground at this stage. It's also great how they use um cliff jumpers death to kick off the essentially the the first season starts off with a mini series called uh darkness think, rising yeah darkness rising where they introduce dark energy on dark energy they feed in like all what it can do like the bit of lore with it through megatron yeah and they they show just how big of a threat this whole situation is culminating into the end of the the end of episode five. Speaking of the nemesis, actually, I think the use of that kind of emphasizes the arrogance of the Decepticons, which is something that they come back to frequently, but it's established that the external threat to both of them, if you like, is this potential that they're going to run out of fuel by going to ground by taking up residence somewhere that doesn't they may still require Energon to run but their home doesn't which means that the Autobots can keep their needs fairly minimal the Decepticons can't do that if they run out of Energon that thing's going to fall out of the sky yeah. I, I also think it's interesting the fact that um, because you're able to because you know that this is essentially a resource war at this moment in time. The f- it makes sense that the primary way of fighting is through melee, because Energon is what they run on, it's what they consume, it's like everything to them. And the fact that them shooting their guns is using this lifeblood, yeah. it makes more sense to engage in hand-to-hand if you can, whereas all the time with um, Decepticons, they'll shoot first. Yeah. They won't go to punch you, they will shoot their guns first. 
That's not to say that the Autobots don't cap a oh, whole no. bunch of uh, vehicles, but um, they, they, yeah, they they are far more martial arts focused than the sort of the leaping through the air, shooting, shooting, shooting. And again, it's it's back to lasers from yeah. uh, from bullets, which makes it a lot less obnoxious. Well, the um, I think they, they they don't illustrate it quite as well, but I think the impression is is still given just by the size and the design difference between the two. The Autobots aren't as well equipped as the Decepticons. Yeah, so, like the Decepticons are they they become weapons. They are weapons. They're covered in weapons. The Autobots have guns built mm. in, but not nowhere near the degree. And also, the Decepticons still have that air superiority. That, that's that's always something that it still makes me laugh. <laughs> Just crack the flight thing, Autobots. You'll do much better. <laughs> to the point where they actually make a little reference to it, where Starscream says, "I don't know why anybody would choose anything but a flight mode." Yeah. So let's move because we've spent this long just talking about cliff jumper let's uh, move on to the first couple of uh human and uh bot we'll go with bulkhead and miko to begin with now uh, i've been talking to uh ryan who uh, was on the uh, transformers 86 uh, the movie uh episode we were doing and um i convinced him to watch this and he said after the first few episodes i don't really see the need of the kids uh, this blew my mind because throughout the uh, series, it becomes increasingly apparent how essential the kids are. So let's just, you know, rather than hammering this point home over and over again and coming back to this, yeah, you see the kids are important. Let's just take it as read. My God, are the kids important to this series? And then we can explain, you know, <clears throat> go back to uh, the reasons why. Now, Miko is actually kind of annoying to me. Yeah. Yes. And she's yeah. supposed to be. She's just an id. She does exactly uh, whatever she feels like. She doesn't seem to take much responsibility for anything. She likes to have fun. She likes to to laugh and rock out and you know smash things up. She's very ungirly. She's a, a Japanese exchange student, and there's something slightly rootless about her in the fact that she doesn't have to go back to her literal parents at the end of every night. So it's almost like she's on this incredible vacation where she gets to hang out with giant robots, and she pretty much adopts Bulkhead as an older brother type. Yeah. And and just kind of seems to want to monopolize his time smashing things up. Um, we, uh, yeah. oh, sorry, well, no, we no. actually had a Japanese exchange student for uh, three months. Uh, it was a program that they were running through town here. And while she was nothing like Miko on the surface, she was a very well-behaved girl. It, it's funny seeing just the comments that she would make and the uh, the way that she would react to certain situations and certain things. They certainly, they took the subtleties of it and they seem to nail it with Miko from what I remember, which was very surreal to watch on screen. Bulkhead in contrast, at least for the first few episodes actually seems not exactly timid, but he's a bit more reserved than Miko. He's definitely into destroying things, but um, he's, and he's, he's kind of boisterous, but it's almost like he's in these first few episodes trying to be on his best behavior if that makes sense. He, he used to be on the Wreckers, uh, which was a crew of uh, various different Autobots, at least two of which ended up as Decepticons, uh, Knockout and Breakdown. And the other one, Wheeljack, uh, has ended up sort of... He's, he's an Autobot still, but he's, he's elsewhere and doesn't really want to hang around, even though they're dreadfully outnumbered. So it's almost like all of his crew have now gone and Bulkhead's ended up with people that he's, he feels a bit clumsy around. He feels like he has to kind of tread carefully in case he destroys anything. And Ratchet specifically rides him about being um, less in control of himself. 
Well, the Wreckers is that commando unit, isn't it? It's the Autobot commando unit, it's a specialist yeah. unit. So we're sort of hinting maybe that Bulkhead's got specialist skills, he's the strongest member of the of this team, and he doesn't feel comfortable maybe because his specialist skills aren't really needed yeah. at this I, moment in time. Yeah. It, it's a it's it's similar to that. It's because um he he was literally he wasn't a soldier, he was literally a construction worker who enlisted. Uh. And it's the fact that I mean, with everybody else, they seem to have come from at least some sort of military background, and it seems like Bumblebee was young enough that when the war, he, he grew up when the battle was going on, whereas Bulkhead comes from this place where he was just a civilian, yeah. and he's been trans- he's essentially with the greatest hope for uh, um, Cybertronian kind, as far as he's concerned, and a whole bunch of specialists, and even even though he is the big, tough guy, he still isn't like classically chain he's pure experience and it he obviously seems to have a bit of an awkwardness around that fact that he's the less he's the one most likely to go against protocol because he's not used to it my favorite bulkhead and miko episode is rock bottom this is actually one of my favorite starscream and megatron ones as well Uh, Uh, it's the one where they're trapped underground in the mine and there's a, a cave in and bulkhead is left like atlas holding up the roof above miko and uh, she's, she seems unable to grasp the severity of the situation. So she's trying to sort of lift one small rock at a time to get them out of there. And, you know, always keeping on a, a, a happy face and smiling and going, she's got to get him out of there. She's got to look after him. And he's, there's a lot of very unspoken stuff between them. It's immediately apparent. He knows she's going to run out of air and he's not going to. So she's going to die a lot longer than he it's going to take for him to get into any kind of real trouble um but there's nothing he can do he's trapped holding the roof and he has to kind of instruct her into you know maybe you know reserving her strength not getting too flustered not using up her air and to just call for help instead of trying to get herself out of it and it's just this wonderful tender episode or that side of it because it it just becomes overly apparent she is small, she is very breakable, she is in need of protection, and she's acting like it just doesn't affect her and shouldn't affect her. I think that's one of her strongest traits. It's the fact that she doesn't acknowledge the fact that she is this small, fragile human being, a bunch of giant titans. The fact that it's, it's the key fact why she always runs into trouble, that she just on some level just refuses to acknowledge that fact. And if you turn it around in the episode TMI, um, but a bulkhead uh, absorbs uh, an enormous amount of information and starts trying to crack a uh, a code for synthetic energon. And the it, slowly over the course of the episode, the bulkhead that we know goes away, and, and he, just, he just becomes this supercomputer. And you get Miko going from you know come on snap out of it to actually being really genuinely worried about it, but she can't talk about it because she doesn't work on that level. She yeah. doesn't confront things like that. She just brushes everything off. The relationships between the the humans and the and the robots were were really really well constructed. And they, like I I would say I probably don't like the character of, of Miko. I guess you're not supposed to, but I I don't know. I just really didn't care for it. But I love Miko and uh, uh, oh my god, what is the robot's name? Bulkhead. Bulkhead. Holy crap, Miko and Bulkhead <laughs> together. 
uh, work really, really well for me. Sorry, I was up until like three last mor- last night uh, drawing the comics, so bear with me. <laughs> I think you've hit on something really important there, though. The, the characters work in pairs. The, the individual characters all seem to have something significant missing. It's when they come together in their respective teams that they become almost a whole. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Arcee and Jack are the uh, next pair we've got. Um, she starts out, there's this almost kind of weird frisson between them where uh, uh, Jack's asked to go with Arcee. And they've they've already bickered with each other a little bit. And he sort of like scratches his head in a kind of shy way, like he's starting to sort of like her like that. But over a few episodes, it becomes much more that she's being a big sister and an overprotective one at that. She's a soldier through and through. She's actually a really well-written soldier in that it's almost incidental that she's female, but there's a certain feminine energy to her which goes with the protection aspect in a slightly different way to the way bulkhead tries to protect miko i don't know sharon are you able to articulate this one this is your field of expertise i think for me what struck me the most about rc is that the fact that she is uh the fact that she is played feminine i suppose would be the best way of putting it because ultimately the um uh the biological chromosomal construct of these creatures is is you know non-existent so they don't bear live young and they exactly. don't mate in that same so, way so in that context uh, her being female doesn't really mm. fit at all but um, clearly but, she does bond with other uh, beings both uh, robot and human in a very strong way she does but again there doesn't seem to be anything particularly uh, gender related to that i mean mm. her her bond with uh, with tailgate uh, with cliff jumper um and with jack they all seem to be very much battlefield connections yeah. and no less intense for that in fact in in many ways more intense for that but there, there's no indication that there's anything that we would consider to be a, a, a relationship of a you know there's a, an attraction a, what we would define as a sexual attraction as i said when we were watching it there really is no need for there to be they wouldn't have those biological impulses that mm. humans would have but um, jack does have that reaction to strong females because his mother is uh, quite overbearing exactly it's the effect that it has on jack i think that is significant and i would say that something about rc's attitude and behavior although you could interpret it as a, a feminine element to her character. I took it more as the fact that she's so much smaller and more fragile than everybody else, mm-hmm. just because of her size, because her limbs are more slender. Because you look at them when they go into um, into fights, and she actually makes the, the comment, um, I think she's exploring somewhere and Miko sneaked along. And um, she says she wants to be up front so that she can see. And RC says, oh, well, I always take point. And Bulkhead's attitude is basically, well, not today, because Miko is. <laughs> She's up front of every battle they go into. RC is there. She's the spearhead. And that seems to me to be the notion of somebody overcompensating for having at some point in their career felt like everybody else had to be protecting them. 
she's someone who seems to be most affected when the mum, Jack's mum, comes involved. Yeah. She's concerned that um, she is going to lose that connection with Jack and that their relationship will, will falter and will disappear. Um, almost like she doesn't want the mum there. And it's only when the mum accepts that Jack's Jack's decision to stay with the Autobots mm. that she accepts the mum. There's uh, that's it's quite a neat um, kind of uh, emotional fencing between the two of them. There's a point where Jack gets challenged to a, a, a motor race with a, some asshole bully in a, a, a Trans Am, and um, RC, who the motorbike he's riding, is like, "Nope." And then the uh, bully insults RC as well, you know, just as a, a crummy motorbike. And she immediately races off after him. And he's like, just this once, we're going to bend these rules. And it's this, it's, it's this kind of, she's held, holding herself in check all the time and she never cuts loose. And just occasionally when she does, it's kind of a joyful moment. See, I really read it. She, she strikes me a lot as the, uh, the other side of the male-female best friend dynamic. And mm-hmm. not with just Jack, like with same with uh, Cliff Jumper and, uh, uh, and, and pretty much everybody. Like they, they really did a good job of not, making her a romantic interest because you know thank god there and and because of that it really shined through like it's there is a different dynamic when you have a a two gender best friend scenario but it doesn't mean that the gender becomes a focus and and somehow they pulled that off yeah they don't necessarily need to do romance in this kind of animated show which is after all let's face it it's for kids and their dads uh, you know, neither of which are, ge- are genuinely uh, hankering after robot love in that same way. The, 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 the battlefield camaraderie can work on, on, on many, many levels. It doesn't necessarily need to turn into something that's actually um, uh, romantic. But not, that doesn't necessarily mean that the bond is any less strong. I think she's the most emotionally scarred yeah. of all the autobots. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely. She's got the most baggage. And she actually needs Jack more... Maybe I would say then Bulkhead and Bumblebee need their respective yeah. humans and that she needs him to overcome what she's gone through with the loss of two, two earlier partners. I couldn't figure out how to Google this. Maybe you guys can clear this one up. She reminds me of a character or a character type, and I can't, I can't for life of me think of who it is, but is there a specific or maybe a series of characters who have lost their partners more than just one. She seems, it seems cause they kept, you know, taking the partners away and threatening Jack and her reaction to it. It seems very much uh, like something I've seen before and I can't place it. Did you see edge of tomorrow recently? No, I want to, I haven't seen that one yet. Emily Blunt in that is basically RC in this. I know what you talked about. Cause I do get that same sense of it is a, specific character trait where there's the person who always seems to lose their partner. Mm. Yeah, and I just can't, I, I guess it's maybe it's too generic and that's why I can't think of a specific one. I, I, I want to say that it is, but I can't place well, it. Well, usually it's, it's a male cop and then uh, an idiot uh, psychic who, who gets in, uh, killed at the beginning and then the male cop gets paired up with someone else later on and then ends up super overprotective. So that's technically what happened here, only mm. they made it uh, her female. But she actually reminds me most of all of Trinity, but less robotic. <laughs> and they obviously they were the, the Wachowskis were deliberately playing Trinity as someone who would cut off her emotions so that they could have that impact at the end of the first film. Uh, but uh, yeah, she has that same kind of like super uh, serious about what she's doing going on. And 
the fact that Jack is human, like her current partner is now far more fragile and far more easily damaged. Yeah. It, it's it's essentially it's like it helps her to come to terms that it's not just her, it's not just the situation. She's not cursed or anything. It's just sometimes bad things happen to good people, and because it seemed like very much like she she sort of closed herself off at the beginning of the series. Like she's not looking for any more friends, any more people that might get hurt because of her. She just wants to keep Jack away. He'll be safe. And I'll I'll be far more better in that situation. But over time, she comes to terms with with the fact that she can't live like that. Yeah, this comes to a head in the episode Predatory when uh, Arachnid first turns up in a, a crashed spacecraft, and Arcee realizes that there's this horrible robot spider crawling around in the woods, and uh, that Jack's in terrible danger. And um, it, interestingly, Jack, played by um, Joshua Keaton. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. So when Arachnid starts, like, thwipping him against the wall with her, her uh, web fluid, it's like, hang on, this they use the same <laughs> sound effect as well. It's weird. Um, but also, uh, uh, Joshua Keaton was um, Green Lantern. He was uh, Hal Jordan. So combining him, uh, you get his voice along with Kevin Michael Richardson as Bulkhead, and it just it brings the flavor of that brilliant series across to Transformers. So you feel like you're in good hands from the word go. That isn't so selfish for RC, because at one point, Jack makes the decision to leave the Autobots. Mm. And it's actually RC who talks him back yeah uh, when was that uh, that was, it was very early on oh yeah. yeah yeah it's drawing i think it's episode four where literally like jackson he's like things have gotten really ahead he's almost yeah. done and says this is dangerous the, the like yeah. he has a very rational uh, response to the situation, yeah, if we're yeah, honest. The situation. <laughs> mirrored by his mother in the uh the finale as well mm. um and Throughout the series, Jack appears to be growing into someone um, that uh, can actually be a leader. And there's kind of a John Connor thing going on with him. He's obviously less of a bad kid than uh, uh, Edward Furlong played John. But um, there's a point where he gets entrusted at the end in in the finale uh, with something very uh, significant. And he's, he's unaware until later just what the significance of that is. It's almost like he requires people to see that within him for him to grow. Yeah. I'd say he has that air of uh, a young man taking on not necessarily more than he should have to, but more than other young men his age, which John yeah. Connor definitely has. So moving on to Bumblebee, anything more on RC and Jack, or you want to like, bring that in? Can I just say we've had, what, 10 15, 20 minutes talking about RC as a character. I feel so happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true <laughs> I, 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 compared to the G1 version. I'd also like to point out that just, just RC is my favorite character from this. She yeah, is. She's, she's did, fantastic. Did I miss it? I'm surprised as a visual guy that I couldn't find it. But were there any uh, visual cues to the original RC on her? I couldn't find any. She's got blue eyes. That's about it. She's yeah. got bits of pink, but it's very much the decal rather than her main colour. She's, she's, she's got pink bits. Yes, she has <laughs> pink bits. Sharon, how could you? <laughs> but yeah, uh, 
it's important to mention the eyes at this point. It doesn't necessarily tie in with any character. But you know how we mentioned in the movie talking about the live-action movies that these sort of dead lamps sit in the heads of the Autobots while their waggling lips just jibber about, like, welcome to the Hall of Presidents. <laughs> in this, their, their eyes scan left and right very subtly in a way that convinces you on a subliminal level that you're not even really paying attention to as a kid or an adult. They're thinking. They're, they, creature, they're real people slash robots in this case. They gave them faces without creeping us out. Yeah. yeah. They've gotten really good at that in animation in a broad general sense. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You wonder if, if there's uh, somebody, like if that's a job. Like there's the guy that animates the fighting and the guy that builds the skeletons. And then there's just one guy. On who emotions. He does the eyes. That's, he does, all he does is eyes. Polygons <laughs> and emotions. <laughs> well, one of the hardest things in, emo- in animation is conveying emotion yeah. because a lot of the times, like before, like the faces would barely move. So a lot of, a lot of times in some very bad animation, like um, food fight, they'll make <laughs> random, just, <laughs> random gestations as if they're being expressive. And it just comes off as nonsense. But when you have it's subtle... Jumping back and forth like the pressing <laughs> for capoeira. Yeah. <laughs> or what? Look at any PlayStation 1. Cuts. Yeah. Mm. But, but when you have the subtleties of human expression, that's what really brings mm. out the emotional parts. Whenever RC is terrified, and she always holds it in, but you are never left in any doubt with the widening of the eyes. that um, And her eyes, which are just round lamps again... Just they're surrounded by a metal which just with there's like little uh, this the eyebrows and there's a slight stretch and a slight warp on on the actual uh, facial animations, but never in a way that makes it seem like literally metal is bending. It always seems uh, to uh, be an organic movement, if that makes sense. Also, it's the like the it's it's the touches of pink around the edges and like the fact that she has a full iris and pupil yeah mm. i mean even megatron's eyes he oh, is yeah. absolutely malevolent but you you can tell he is plotting and planning some evil shit when you look into those just giant white orbs in the middle of a completely red iris oh god friend i'll go now <laughs> <laughs> We'll do the Decepticons in a bit, but Jesus. Um, Bumblebee and Raphael. Now, I was kind of surprised that Bumblebee is, relative to someone like, say, Bulkhead, is relatively it's sparse in terms of his characterization throughout the series, possibly because he speaks like R2-D2, so it's all... And so he can't really converse with Raphael in the same way. Um, so everything has to be uh, body language with him and context. It's, the bits that are there are excellent, but of the main bots, I think he and Optimus, surprisingly, are the ones who are characterized the least throughout the series, possibly because they are the ones characterized the most in the films, so it's almost like you want to put them at the back a little more. Yeah, yeah I think they take the opportunity to actually grow. I mean, I never watch animators, so I don't know how what Bullkeads like compared to that. Bumblebee is an annoying little tosser, I'll tell you that. He's like, ain't I a stinker? <laughs> 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 Maybe well, he gets better later on, but from the first few episodes, no. That just sounds very off-point. <laughs> uh, I, I, the only thing that really bugs me about this, they take the film thing of the whole Bumblebee can't talk, which I just oh, find yeah. irritating. But considering how you said it wasn't animated, maybe I should be thankful for that. 
I, I, I wish they'd given him a voice. I mean, I just the, the part of for me mostly is because I almost didn't give the show a chance with the the visual aesthetic being very similar to the show. You know, yeah, beautiful by comparison, but still very similar. And then finding out Bumblebee doesn't talk. My first impression was okay. It's this just going to be direct, like the films. Yeah. yeah, it's a direct sequel to the films, and I I think it was on for three or four or even six months before I actually went and gave it a chance because I, I was completely destroyed mm. by the movies. So yeah. I saw the first episode and went, yeah, it was pretty good, and then turned it off for months on end. I really should have stuck with it. Autobots, prepare to... Roll out. Remain here. Ratchet, you'll come with me. R.C., We'll be outside communications range for some time, so I'm putting you in charge. Dude, you're biggest. You should be the boss. Um, he never picks me. Optimus, with all due respect, playing bodyguard is one thing, babysitting's another. <gasps> Besides, Ratchet hasn't been in the field since the war. My pistons may be rusty, but my hearing is sharp as ever. For the moment, it's only reconnaissance. Then why do I hear an edge in your voice? R.C., much has changed in the last 24 hours, and we all need to adapt. Ratchet, bridge us out. I feel there are two main reasons they did it. Um, One was basically... Oh, sorry, guys. Can you hear that in the background? Nope. No. No? Okay, then. Um, I'll let you know if someone's got like a, a terrible sound in the background. At least not like uh, Josh, who goes uh, basically bumblebees and the fucking fire truck <laughs> is going by again. <laughs> he lives well, next to a if fire he will station, live in London, yeah. Okay, carry on, Joe. I'm sorry. Uh, the first reason is basically Transformers Prime, as you mentioned, is content. It's in continuity with the War and Fall of Cybertron. Yeah, and in that series. He gets he gets wounded mm. by Megatron, and it actually does affect. It's like that. It's that classic story of his voice box was damaged. Yeah, but, but that the was second, in the game that came out after the first season of Prime. But I suppose I, it just stays in continuity. The second reason is it it gives um if you remember um Rafsum whole story is like he comes from a huge family yeah and he fo- always feels like he's never heard yeah like Raphael is the, a shy little kid who's very good with technology he's like the invisible child but having some like Bumblebee where he's like the only human who can understand him mm. and he's his gives, C-3PO it gives it gives them that extra like connection like Bumblebee has a person who who he can speak to, like hasn't got to always emote and everything, and yeah. Raph has someone who's always paying attention to him. Yeah, and there's a there's a very Hogarth and Iron Giant thing going on between these guys. Yeah. It's also in Bulkhead and Miko uh, that yeah the 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 fact that like Bulkheads they've reshaped his frame and his face to actually far more resemble the giant in this. And there's even points mm. where his eyes become sort of round and lamp-like. Uh, the, the bit in Scrap Heap when the little sort of alien parasite robot things uh, break into the uh, uh, base and um, the lights go out and he's just sort of left in the dark and he screams like a girl. Um, <laughs> it's There's that kind of slightly tender, he's a little puppy and a little kid going on a bit more. But Bumblebee's like that as well. They, they emphasize him being young. Yeah. Kind of no, I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh no, no, that was 
that was my next oh, point. Yeah. It also ties into the fact that both of them are the youngest in their group, and yeah. like Bumblebee's still trying to prove himself. Like as they explain, he hasn't reached like warrior class yet, yeah. but yeah. he's still one of their best fighters. And Raph, like he's a brilliant kid, but it seems like not many people take notice of his abilities. Yeah. Forgive me uh, if I'm jumping too far ahead, but I can't remember. They never explain why Raph can understand Bumblebee, do they? No. Like, even not, later in the explicitly. series. Explicitly. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things I actually liked about the show. I, I can't think of more specific examples right now, but I feel like there was more things that they just, they put them on the screen because they worked, and then they ran with it. You don't, they didn't try to over-explain a lot of things. Yeah. They tell you what you need to know without, it it could have ended up so exposition-y just sitting there yakking away. And it costs so much every second of, uh, of animation. It's absolutely gorgeous. But I I was, I was thinking back to the, the way um, some of the lines, especially in the finale are delivered fairly quickly. And I'd almost, you know, my, the editor and me saying, slow it down guys, just allow the, the performance to actually, uh, you know, sort of rule this one. But it's like, well, no, they got so much to get done in only about 20 minutes. So to, to go into ridiculous amounts of, of time, like to explain why uh, Raf can understand it would almost cheapen it. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, it's, it's a fairy tale effectively. It doesn't matter how he, he knows he's good with machines. That really comes down to it. It's like, how, how did, how was Mozart able to look at a piano and do that? There is a fine line with it, though. And I think one of the key signs of a really good writing in general is knowing the difference. Like, if you put something on the screen and you can tell that your audience is going to want to know more, Mm. then you tell them more. But if you put something on the screen and you can tell that it's not important how this happens, just that it does, that's a really key distinction that's missed pretty much always. (laughs) And if you try to explain it over and over again with alien DNA... Fail. Epic fail. <laughs> <laughs> or nanotechnology. Oh, yeah, nanotechnology, obviously. Metaclorians? No, 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 hold on. Destiny. Destiny. Special uh, blood. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> In Sick Mind, which is the one where Bumblebee goes into Megatron's comatose body and tries to, um, uh, to extract information from his dormant mind... That's, that's one of the best sort of standout moments for him. Again, he's mute, and everything has to be explained from the Greek chorus of Ratchet explaining sort of roughly what's, what's going on, but also what, what we can perceive. Megatron has trapped himself on purpose, it would appear, in a purgatory wherein he has to execute Optimus Prime again and again and again. That's what he wants to be doing in his own mind. <laughs> I didn't really interpret that as that was what he wanted to be doing, more that that was what he was so obsessed with, that, that that's where he would put himself. Well, he even yeah. stated that that was his purpose. He didn't, if, I think I just watched that, that one a couple of days ago. I think he says, right to Bumblebee, this is what I'm built for. This is, yeah. this is what I do. It yeah, is purpose that drives us. It's how ironically it was Hugo Weaving in the films. <laughs> it's literally how his mind is keeping his, con- his himself yeah. conscious. Yeah. That obsession with Optimus. But we get to see uh, Bumblebee actually having to react to a situation where he doesn't have any backup, where he has to work everything out for himself. And um, yeah, it's, it's an excellent bit of back and forth. But of course, the, the most significant moment, I suppose I can sort of spoil the beginning of the fourth to last episode, because it's, it's important for Bumblebee here. Well, um, you can be vague about it's, it's, you can be quite vague about it either way. I can, I can, I, I'll steer clear of the plot of that episode, but Raphael gets injured 
And there's this really excellent shot where he's in the back of Bumblebee and uh, Megatron strafes them from the sky and B crashes and you just see Raph's hand just drop. And you don't get that kind of, they they mention in the commentary, you don't get that reassuring moan of, it's okay, kids, he's all right. That kind of, mm. at that point, Raph could be dead. Yeah. And then when B brings him back to base and he's gravely injured, B punches a wall in. He's re, he's furious. And suddenly this gentle Iron Giant type, it's that bit at the end of the Iron Giant when he goes, <laughs> only he is has the other bots around to keep him under control. When he when he almost dove at Megatron, the things they did with his eyes just before yeah. that—that was the. I mean, they didn't go red, but they were Decepticon eyes. He has the Iron Giant's eyes, and the kind of like they've got those apertures, the the little sort of the closing shutters. Same thing. So that it's um, after the Sick Mind episode, Megatron ends up inside Bumblebee's mind. Mm. So you get this like you know super tension of of the fact that uh, Bee's wandering around with this. Um, evil presence in there and no one else knows about it uh, but <clears throat> again with the uh, expression on his eyes it sort of it, it ro- they rotate around so you can see again exactly what's going on there so well, visual storytelling excellence also a little bit of character design that I like about Bumpy is the fact that they've kept his mouth guard on because he's never using his he's never using his mouth yeah he's always using that sort of that squeaky R2-D2 way of speaking, so he doesn't need to use his mouth. But once you've uh, been gotten used to this version of Bumblebee, when you look at the one from the movies, he looks like a horrifying insect. <laughs> oh, I, I've, I haven't watched the movie since I rewatched this, yeah. and I don't intend to. Same. <laughs> Hang on. I, I, got I, made to, I, I rewatched him for the series. Ain't touching him again. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask, Did uh, maybe I missed this, but did it seem really good the way that they did Bumblebee talking to the Autobots and the Decepticons? They didn't somehow they they set up the dialogue so that the person they were speaking to didn't repeat what they said. They only did that with Raft to the humans. Yeah, they, like they were really like that's a really big trick to do. Like they, I, I mean, I don't know that they did it perfectly, but I remember very well that I was very impressed that the the whoever Bumblebee was speaking to who was a robot did not repeat what Bumblebee said. Yeah, the yeah. context allows you to, to work out what was being said. One yeah. of my other favorite things of that is um, Adventure Time where they have a lady Rain and Corn who just speaks Korean. Mm. If you can understand her, you can understand her. That's it. <laughs> you know what? It's, uh, it's Han and Chewie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, you, you, they could have just put subtitles for Chewie. You don't need them. Who, uh, who are the writers? Like, I, I'm guessing there's a lot per episode, but was there kind of an overarching somebody who I should know who's done other stuff? Uh, and Orsi were like, were they they exec produced. I don't think they actually wrote it. Hang on. Um, let's check on this one. There are a bunch of them, and they've turned up in the various um, uh, commentaries. And there's, there's several women involved as well, which is definitely... I'm not saying that you need women to get emotion, but having them there certainly doesn't hurt. No kidding. Writing credits. Okay, there's one, two, three, four. There's like a a, a dozen and a half. Um, yeah, usually on shows like this there is, but there's almost there seems to be I don't know. Like it, writing is not my forte, but it just seems to be like like there's somebody or a, a select few of them, maybe all of them, just really know because we're we're giving mad props to point a phrase there to the to the writing a lot here. Yeah, it deserves it. There's, uh, of this 
dozen and a half, there's three people whose names turn up over and over again. 40 episodes, 37 episodes, 41 episodes. Dwayne Capizzi, uh, who I think also produced it. or That sounds it. really familiar. Uh, he, Dwayne Capizzi, has also worked on... Uh, actually, less than you'd imagine. Um, Superman Doomsday... You know what? I just watched that. That's why it looks familiar. There you go, then. Uh, Starship Troopers, the series. Now, they mentioned that several times when they were talking about the, the way they put Transformers together. Niels, you're the Starship Troopers fan. Uh, any of those series and, and animated versions any good? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did that, was my noise just explanatory enough? Actually, uh, to be fair, Rico's Roughnecks wasn't too bad. Mm. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't great. It lacked some of the punch and the satire. I'd he, still would rather watch Rico's Roughnecks over any of the actual sequels. He worked on the animated series of Cops. He worked on Alf. He worked on the Gummy Bears. The Return <laughs> of Jafar. Extreme Ghostbusters. I will stand up. Extreme Ghostbusters was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Don't let I still got to watch that. Uh, and yeah, so uh, Dwayne Capizzi did that. And uh, they, the other guys, Marsha F. Griffin, I think she was one of the ones in the, uh, uh, the, f- the, the finale, has uh, 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 commentaries. And uh, yeah, smart lady, head on her shoulders. Stephen Melching is the, uh, the other one. These are all, uh, huh. Stephen Melching worked on Robocop Alpha Commando in 1998. <laughs> also, uh, the, the original movie of The Mask worked on Clone Wars as well. Okay. Mm. Well, I, I, everyone's got to have a time to do something absolutely brilliant. This would appear to be their time. Yes. Um, do, 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 do. Marsha F. Griffin again worked on Roughnecks. And uh, Batman the Brave and Bold, Transformers Animated. Uh, some episodes, two episodes of Ben 10, one episode of X Men Evolution, some Kim Possible. Uh, so, yeah, this is, these are all people who've worked in animation pretty much their whole professional lives. And uh, again, this is. It's going to be really hard to actually to, to match this, and I, I really, I, I hope, I genuinely hope that the the follow up series, which technically apparently takes place in the same universe, Robots in Disguise, is of this caliber. But the, the animation, again, it's that Transformers animated style. It's it's a, it's a world apart in terms of style. Hmm. Ratchet, who isn't paired up with a human, and kind of has to be characterized in the fact that he is so lonely and has no other and is a crotchety, um, frustrated old medic. He's awesome. Sharon's he is, he is <laughs> close, but not quite McCoy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's voiced by Jeffrey Combs, the reanimator himself. The question from Justice League Unlimited. Um, uh, uh, wonderfully personified. Yes, I'm where you... And, and I think he's probably my favorite bot in the whole series. My favorite bot to look at. His design is incredibly like Gundam style. Like he's got these awesome feet and he looks like he should be a warrior. And somebody mentioned in, in one of the commentaries that he used to be a warrior. Now yeah. he's a medic. That's why he's so frustrated during uh, better, stronger, faster. The one where he ends up on um, uh, steroids effectively. Yeah. yeah literally. Basically, he's the person who's seen so many battles and survived so many that he eventually just became a medic by happenstance. He's the better rebooted version of Cup as well. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. Yes. Yeah. The, um, 
that episode, Stronger Faster, he actually stands up to Prime because he's becoming addled by the green glowing stuff. What was out of our reanimator? I know that. Was, <laughs> I can only say that was a really big fanboy moment for me because yeah. I just love the fact Jeffrey Gooms was, was, was playing Ratchet. And then they did a reanimator style episode, which I was just like, what? Really? They were passing around the table. What color should we make this synthetic energy on? Should we go with green? Let's do glowing that. green. Yeah, and and yeah, he he, he ends, ends up being this like complete asshole, and um, like you know, taking on the Decepticons one on uh, on one, and 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 doing really well at it, and he tortures a Decepticon, you, you know, like he blow torches his goddamn optic, and it's seen that they were worried that this wasn't going to get through at all, and somehow it got passed, possibly because. In Revenge of the Fallen, it's done in a kind of, yeah, well, wouldn't you want to torture this little bastard? Uh, you know, kind of way like, you know, burn out another one of his eyes. That's perfectly fine. In a genuinely disturbing moment involving <laughs> Megan Fox. And in this, it's supposed to be disturbing. It's supposed to make you go, going a bit too far here, Ratchet. It, it's using torture for, it, it's, it's a miniature version for kids of Zero Dark Thirty. I, I think one of the defining things is the fact that it's clear from that episode that he's feeling very much how bad of a situation they're all in. And obviously he's been around since the war began and he's still got all that baggage, but he's always been, he's always had to be another voice of reason along with, um, along with Optimus. Like he, he, he always has to like give, give the right advice. And during the, during that whole episode, he literally lets loose and that, that filter is taken completely away. Yeah. And then he pitches himself against Megatron and bites off more than he can chew. And there's a moment when you're like, well, he's beaten a couple of other Decepticon like stormtroopers. Maybe he can actually go toe to toe with Megatron. Maybe confidence is all he needs to know. Wait a second. <laughs> and Megatron catches his fist in midair, twists it around and then talks calmly to knock out as though Ratchet's not even there, just talking about him in a kind of curious, this one. Talk about owning a situation. Uh, one of my favourite Ratchet episodes was the one with the kids' science experiments. Ah, mm. uh, yes. I think that's where the big turning point for Ratchet, he actually starts to accept the humans. He comes across as cranky, doesn't want to, doesn't see the point of him, sees some yeah. interference. And then we've got this science experience, he becomes obsessed with it. I can't believe yeah. at the end that his experiments that he took over was actually a failure. And that's where he sort of progresses in his relationship with the humans and he sees them as really important. And you can see him when Raph becomes injured. He is, is shocked on his face, the fact that he can't do anything almost because yeah. it's, it's, he hasn't got the medical expertise of a human. He's known them all these months yeah. and he never took the time to, to get to know the human body. Yeah, I, I find he's got almost an equal relationship with all three of the kids, whereas they stick pretty well to their partners. He has a pretty balanced relationship with all three of them. You almost can't say that about any of the other bots. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Bulkhead very rarely talks mm. to Raph, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Cause for Jack, he's like the link to Optimus's past for Mika is like the constant stick in the mud that you have fun with. (laughs) And for Raph is, is the other technical mind that he can converse with. Yeah. Good point. And it is important that he doesn't have a kid to, 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 uh, to take care of himself. Like like I said, it, it, it kind of um, isolates him more and he's, 
I noticed this today. He only goes out like once or twice in the whole episode. He's at yeah. home all the time. He's he's like he's almost stir crazy from it. Like he has to be the responsible one. Yeah, one one of the things that um accentuate um the poor decision in the um sorry, what what's the episode called? The um the green the synthetic Stronger Faster. Yeah, in Stronger Faster, the fact that it's he is the medic, like one of the key points of a medic is for them not to get hurt. Yeah. Because what happens when your medic is gone? And like that all dawns on him, like in that situation where Megatron takes him out and he's in that he's like very like if he stays where he is with no help he's going to die and it's clear that he's thinking about what what the autobot's going to do without him there are some other humans who uh, turn up uh, repeatedly in the show not enough to make a massive impression but enough for you to 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 consider them as recurring characters Uh, jack's mother kind of works in tandem with rc in terms of uh bringing bringing a, a more confident personality out of jack simply because he gets henpecked by the both of them at once hmm. yeah yeah um and at the same time she's uh, she kind of takes charge of the situation when raf gets injured she decides uh, this is enough that's enough kids you're all getting in the car with me we're going home we are separating ourselves from this scenario which is what a grown-up would do you wouldn't let kids hang around with these guys and it makes absolute perfect sense at that stage and it's, it's almost like to begin with, it's like mum can never know about this. Uh, you know, they're trying to sort of keep the secret. And then halfway through the season, it's like, nah, we, we kind of just have to tell her this is ridiculous. She's grounding me for being out and I'm being out for matters of global security. And, you know, there's, there's other things than that me being grounded is going to endanger. And then there's Agent Fowler played by anybody? Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson, oh, mm-hmm. the fourth Ghostbuster. And uh, I love the fact that he's got a bit of a gut. They, yeah. Originally, they were <laughs> going to make him really buff and give him a six-pack, but the fact that he's sort of like old, his hairline's receding a bit, and he's he's, he doesn't quite fit his suit, it kind of shows that he's been, you know, what's the matter? You, the government got you pushing too many pencils? <laughs> it's that. It's, it's clear, like, he's been given this division, mm. like... He's been around for quite some time. They've decided to pawn this off on him. Yeah. And, like, he's, he, no matter what, he's determined to do a good job, <laughs> even, if he sh- even if he puts himself in the situations he shouldn't. This is um, the kind of agent that should have been in the Transformers movies. This is what, yeah. um, what's his name? The, uh, no, the... just leave it as what's his name. Yeah, the soldier in the first one who looks a bit like the the soldier Lennox from the beginning ends up being kind of a government liaison for the Transformers, but barely takes any control of any situation. He should have been a recurring character, and there should have been this kind of guy in there to sort of to to, to constantly link the humans and human agencies. But instead, it's all. Those movies are all about the government fucking over the Autobots and fucking over the American uh, people because of their conspiracies. And this series is so refreshingly free of U.S. government conspiracies. Oh, thank God for that. Fortunately, taking up that side of things, we have Silas, played by Clancy Brown. Oh, yes! Lex Luthor's here. I kind of wish these guys had been in it more. They're they're kind of like a rogue government, like ex-government splinter group who want to harness the Transformers technology because they uh, refuse to let the human race get taken over by Decepticons. Well, it's it's not even that. They're just purely about advanced tech. Like They're like AIM. They didn't know about the Transformers. Hmm. We don't know at first, do we? We don't know. Oh, find, right. out, find out in that episode with that what was the weapon that 
crime. Trans- oh, the MacGuffin. Yeah. The, <laughs> the one in convoy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the transport on the train and all that. Yeah. That's, That's the most like one of the uh, movies because in the movies, they're always after some MacGuffin that they've got to stop falling into someone's hands uh, in this episode. Have you seen season two yet? Not yet. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> Don't spoil yeah. it for him. Don't please. say anything. It's still good. It Basically, is. Um, it they weird. do play bigger parts. Oh, good. Cool. Cool. It gets a little weird, though, to be fair. Mm. I like where they take it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's good. But initially, it's a little. A little weird and a little, uh, yeah. Mm. But because it's animation, they don't, ha- they are not forced to relegate most of the screen time to humans like they are with the anima- the live action, yeah. mostly live action movies. So, so it's it's mostly focused on the above relationships we've just gone through, and every episode just advances one or more of those a little bit further, and they begin to rely on each other a little bit further. This is a show for kids, but. There's so much in there to appeal to people all the way through the spectrum if they actually sat down and gave it a chance relative to the movies, which are just made for 14-year-old boys. I I, I think the clear distinction is it's a family program. Like, it's something that the family can watch. It's not just for the kids or just something for the parents. It's for both. But ironically, in in making sure that it is accessible to small kids, specifically small kids for whom this will be their G1. Yeah. They mentioned that as part of their remit, that, you know, they have to understand, they they can't just dump a whole load of Transformers lore on the kids and expect them to go, oh, yeah, there was that one bit in that show 30 years ago that I didn't see because I wasn't born. (laughs) Um, And at the same time, neither did they just sort of, you know, just lay down huge amounts of... Um, thousands of years ago moments so that when they do happen, you actually pay attention. It's a similar approach that they did with um, Beast Machines. Not oh, Beast yeah? Wars, sorry, because obviously it had been, it'd been quite some time in between the two series. Mm-hmm. And like for, peop- for people of my generation, like for me, my G1 is Beast Wars. Of course. And it, it tied in everything with lore and everything. And they have to take it from the point of view that they... Kids like might know what a transformer is, but they don't know the transformers. Yeah, that's that's so funny for that kind of distinction. G, uh, Beast Wars is nineties, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Very so yeah, my G one is my G one, and mm-hmm. so I had a, a really strong appreciation for Beast Wars because I was at that older age. I was in eleven, twelve, or whenever it yeah. came out, and uh, uh, so it, it was kind of a breath of fresh air. Like nostalgia puts more context into things than is ever there. And oh, yeah. the people that capture yeah. nostalgia the best, which actually, this is kind of what this does. When you, when you do a really good job of capturing nostalgia, you realize the potential. A lot of the stuff that we grew up on uh, is junk. Uh, we didn't have, uh, Alex and I, you're in your, you're in your mid-30s too, aren't you, Alex? 33, yeah. Yeah, thir- 34 here. We didn't have a Beast Wars. We didn't have... Uh, gargoyles we didn't we these things came when we were able yeah, to appreciate batman, the animated well. series i was 12 and i yeah. i kind of had to keep it under wraps that i was watching batman at school <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so it's shameful i would have been laughed at for watching one of the best tv shows ever it's I'm, so true bunch of wankers i'm gonna be honest it's very weird for me talking about childhood cartoons because a lot of 80s cartoons were shown in the 90s and i think they're 90s cartoons but they turned out to be 80s Ah, yeah. yeah, syndication. I'll throw that right off. Yeah, especially yeah. seeing as I was in the UK and 
animated oh, shows yeah. came to the UK far later than they did in the US. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We th- we never even got season two of Thundercats. It just no, we ended. didn't. <laughs> oh wow! God's sake. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just it's funny when you if you can do that if you can realize potential because mm. that's that's what we love that's what we love about the mm. things that we grew up with we don't love the writing of G one we don't love the designs of the Transformers exclusively we love the potential we love yes. there there was potential there and people who see that and bring it back and do it well like with Beast Wars like with this uh, like with uh, the twenty twelve Turtles when you take that potential and do it well. You, you win, but it, so many times they take nostalgia, and I think that's the biggest problem with the movies. Is the the Transformers movies is they they only look at the goofiness, they only looked at the ridiculousness and the silliness, and uh, not taking anything seriously, and they they focus on the wrong things. That's so ironic, isn't it? With the stigma of I can't watch that show; it's for kids. I'm going to watch the grown up films, which are not at all grown up. At no. all. You wouldn't no. get deep wang shit in a film for real grown-ups. No. I mean, you'd get something like it, but it would be funny. <laughs> Actually funny. <laughs> that would be nice. It would be satirical. Yeah, well, there you go. Now, that's, that's, that's another key thing. You can actually do nostalgia well with satire. Mm. Yeah. Which none of the Transformers movies are. Nope. <laughs> it's a, a, here's one of the things... And this sort of moves on to our, we're going to talk about Optimus Prime now. And I, I thought he was going to be like the star of the show because obviously, you know, with him being sort of headlined in the movies so much, the reason these movies keep getting such an enormous audience is because 30-something men keep coming back to watch their dad in action because that's who Optimus was to so many guys. Mm-hmm. Whether we had a dad or not, in you know, obviously in the eighties uh, and nineties was when divorce started really kicking in, and a lot of more uh, absent fathers. Um, but even if we had a dad, this was like the dad we wanted. This was the sort of uh, the, the man we could look up to, and he was a goddamn robot. Hmm. But yeah. just there's something so respectworthy about Optimus Prime. So that's why we. Keep going back to the fucking Michael Bay films because they deliver us this. If Peter Cullen had not been in them and they'd fluffed Optimus Prime or not even had it in, oh yeah, these films yeah. would have, you know, they'd have petered out years ago. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and and as as I said, he's kind of pushed not so much to the background. He's still there, but he doesn't drive the plot. He isn't There's the focus of this series. Ironically, since it's called Prime. There's at least one or two episodes he's not even in. Mm. But that doesn't mean that it, you don't genuinely feel his presence and that when he steps in and starts speaking, just everyone's like, all rise for Peter Cullen. Yeah, which I actually think helps this series because yeah. it gives him time to, you know, like with RC, to create this fantastic layered character or bulkhead and ratchet. It lets the characters breathe and grow and become something more than just, oh, this is the... This is this name bot, and it turns into this. You know, there's this character, personality. There's, yeah. there's many important things there. I like that. Kind of reminds it's, me of Firefly in that, you know, it doesn't always have to just be about Mal. Yeah. It's a moral centre of the series. Yeah. Like I said, he's just a moral centre, isn't he? Um, he's the leader. He comes across as um, teaching the kids and his Autobots how to behave almost. Yeah. That, you should behave like this. 
and it allows him to breathe as well. It allows, it allows Bulkhead to make a choice whether to rescue that Decepticon. He's yeah, a breakdown. That's uh, um, uh, Operation Breakdown when he allows people to make mistakes and yeah. to learn from them. Yeah, they illustrated um, that really well. I think this stems from the, uh, the, the something that they mentioned in one of the commentaries. Again, uh, it takes a, a good soldier to follow orders and a great soldier to break them. I mean, Obviously, that's not an across-the-board thing, but uh, if, if you look into that, it, it comes down to somebody who is able to make a judgment call at the right time. I think there are specific reasons for that as well, but I don't know if I can talk about them yet. Yeah, okay. no, they, they kind of feed into the last few episodes. Yeah, I was in a similar situation. <laughs> to be fair, they do mention, like, they do make a brief mention to Optimus's past, and it helps. Um, essentially, like, the reason why Optimus is a prime is it's his ability to move people. Mm. It's not that he's the greatest warrior or anything. It's the fact that he has that that gravitas. He's he comes from a place of um on your own level just trying to motivate you to be a better person yeah he has no doubts in the ability of others as well when him and rc are trapped in alaska yeah and he says i have no doubts that ratchet will come and save us the other autobots will save us and there's that tender moment is it we're holding hands with rc yeah and everything so he is like he has so much scope in his leadership and all like, of his skills one of the key reasons that Optimus and Megatron are always opposed is the fact that Optimus, even now in this situation throughout the series, he wants a peaceful, he wants a peaceful resolution for this. Mm. And the fact that he has the complete antithesis of war, like Megatron wants nothing to do with peace. The fact that he still keeps trying, he still sees that, part that he once saw within Megatron that he's still trying to grasp hold to. This fills me with depression considering what I've seen in Transformers 3 and 4. Jesus Christ, they've twisted his character. Oh yeah. That's what's so sad about everyone going back to see their dad with PTSD in a way that isn't actually looked at or explained and it's like, isn't he great? Isn't he a war hero? <laughs> no, he, he's gone crazy. Um... There was a point in the episode Partners where uh, Starscream uh, says, you know, I've learned my lesson from being the Decepticons. I want to join your team. And Prime says something along the lines of, we can't just decide that because he's a Decepticon, he must be destroyed. Everyone has needs a chance at redemption. Now, I don't know if you guys, who was on the episode where we talked about Transformers 3? I have yes. to admit, I Neil. watched that. <laughs> uh, it's the one where I talked to, uh, basically, I sort of put words into Prime's mouth and, and basically had him reanalyze the situation where Cybertron was a, a genuine threat to the Earth, but that you know, he was questioning the fact that he and the other Autobots were going up against their own kind. And I just you know penned down the words, uh, something along the lines of every uh, individual has a should have a chance at redemption. And I hadn't seen this episode yet, because he bloody says that in this episode, and it's not from anywhere else. And it's I, I was just like, whoa, they nailed Prime at that stage. At least as far as I understand him, someone who would actually allow one of his most hated, you know, one of his most dangerous enemies a chance. 
Yeah, because you the thing you gotta remember, like the Autobots and Decepticons, it all started from a civil war yeah. where they were just people who were motivated by some cause and in the course of the whole battle, like people have changed sides, so it's not unprecedented that somebody would decide to switch sides and mm. join the Autobots for a good reason. And there's always that thing with Starstream where you sort of know he's just looking for the best situation, but like Optimus knows that even if he even if there's that chance they might betray us, there is still that potential that he could yeah. do something. The principle of, of of allowing him this uh, possibility of redemption is more important than constant vigilance and protection to the point of aggression. It comes down to that uh, argument about execution, though, doesn't it? That it's yeah. it's not necessarily about the person you're executing. It's about what impact that action has on you. My name is Optimus Prime, and I send this message. Though we did not choose to be of Earth, it would seem that we are here to stay. If you approach this planet with hostile intent, know this. We will defend ourselves. We will defend humanity. We will defend our home. Continued in next week's episode, Transformers Prime Decepticons. Digital Drift, episode 37, recorded July 20th, 2014. Transformers Prime, part 2. Decepticons. This week on New Century, a nature documentary-style observation of a Wendigo on the hunt goes horribly wrong. Come along to the Patreon for this kick-ass steampunk web series. Your support will fund the ongoing Season 1 and raise the chances of there being a Season 2. Much love going out to my first 46 patrons. You are all in my cool book.
And as it transpires, um, Megatron's uh, heading up the uprising. This is in the thousands of years ago moment at the end of the, of the series. Uh, this isn't spoiling what happens then. It's, it's, yeah. it's shedding light on what happened before. Um, he led the uprising because Cybertron had stagnated. It, it was had become decadent and the leaders were had become an autocracy. And so at the time, Orion Pax, prime before he was prime, saw something in Megatron, saw a leader he could follow, saw a brother, and actually agreed with him. It was the fact that whether this was already in his heart or not, Megatron had become corrupted by trying to um, usurp this power and then take it for himself. Yeah, because you got to remember, like, as far as like people were concerned, like bots were concerned at that point, Megatron's... Uh views were just like he'd come from a low class like he came from the gladiatorial ring yeah he named himself after one of the primes and he, and he he his his stance that he's going on is like people should be equal and obviously it's hard not to stand behind something like that yeah and it's clear that that's how we got so many followers that's how the decepticons became so in became so many numbers yeah and bear in mind that uh, Orion was a librarian at that point. Mm. The fact that um, Meg- like m- both Megatron and Optimus Prime have a charisma that others are drawn to. Yeah. The episode partners that I mentioned before was dedicated to Larry Cullen, uh, brother of Peter, who died uh, around about the time that episode was put together. And if you remember, folks, he was the uh, original inspiration for Optimus Prime. He was the guy that, uh, that Peter did when... Peter assumed the mannerisms of when uh, personifying Optimus. So uh, it, just knowing that he's uh, had now passed on kind of felt felt like a bit of Optimus had, had been taken away as well. And it's not going to be too long before we lose Peter as well. So I treasure every episode of this because this is this is Optimus Prime done right as well as Transformers done right. Can, I got to ask a question. It might not make me unpopular in terms of asking it, but it's just something that I, I noticed. He his deliveries. He nailed. He he got the voice. I don't know how close it is to his real voice, but he got the voice again. But his deliveries seemed the most phoned in. Did anybody else feel that? Like, I I don't know. I don't know how this show was recorded. Like, there's two ways that you record an animated show. Either it's, you it's all together. Voice, they're in a room all together. They're, they're, or they're in a room all together. Yeah. Everybody else sounds like they're in a room all together. Peter never does in this, to me. That's interesting, because I had a, a more of a character-based interpretation of that, that he, basically, if you watch he's what he's isolated. doing... He's isolated, he's yeah. distracted. Whenever they're, um, you know, getting involved in stuff, which is just day-to-day... Um, uh, fixing things and being interested in things and exploring things he's always got this big picture in mind um that he has to pursue and he's he's got he's got the weight of leadership on him ultimately yeah. it falls to him to make sure that the Autobots have enough energy on to keep them going and then add to that the responsibility of making sure that these tiny tiny humans don't die he can never allow himself to get angry or sad or despairing. Mm, or he can't connected. confide in anyone with that. He could he could possibly take RC aside and talk to her about it, but he doesn't. And that informs on his character. One, if that uh, if that was the case, that that improves it. But it was just it, it's a nitpick, I know, but it's to me it stands out like like very noticeably. Yeah, one, I think it's something that's sort of left out to interpretation. One of the clearest um, 
clearest examples of that moment is simply when Jack show Jack the kids bring up a, something funny and Ratchet it brings out a laughing Ratchet. <laughs> it's and, a lol cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Jack, Jack and Ratchet goes. Yeah. <laughs> Jack just asks Optimus, "Hey Optimus, do you want to see something funny?" No. no. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's it. Like even this small little moment of reprieve, he's not willing to. He's not willing to allow himself. Originally, I didn't like the fact that they went with the movie uh, method of having him giving him lips and then a cage, only putting his mask on for battle. But uh, that's now become kind of the the definitive prime for me. So it's it. I kind of accept it now because he's his mouth. I get it seems more like it's floating in liquid metal as opposed to sort of the um, automaton style lips. But um, it's it's very expressive and. For some reason, this one works for me. I mean, for me, I'm just talking about his character. He doesn't really develop over the series, mm. you know. And I mean, one of the things I've read about the IDW comics is he always has doubts about himself. Oh yeah, yeah. And that never comes across in the series. That he has doubts about his leadership, about what he's doing, about him being on Earth, mm. about his choices he makes, all the. Every Autobot has died, hurts and cuts him deeply. I've never seen um, that anywhere. I've got to read these comics. Which yeah. ones? Are, which ones are good examples of that? Oh. These are collections work. But they are kind of dear. I think yeah. like the first volumes about thirty quid. Oh, Jesus! Oh, if anyone, folks, by the way, can can tell us really good Optimus characterization along those lines, let us know because I'd really like to. I can recommend um, many issues of Transformers Spotlight if you can get them digitally. They're only one pound forty nine each, and each episode it's it's non sequential, so you can read them in any order, and each one highlights a single character. Uh, I specifically I've, I was surprised as hell to enjoy the Megatron one. It characterized Megatron and Starscream. Um, in a very similar scenario in that Starscream's been leading the Decepticons for three years in this other universe of version of events and Megatron comes back and he then chases Starscream across space and Starscream's pleading for his is Starscream pleading for his life? I think it's almost like Megatron's under the impression because you get this whole thing from Megatron's perspective that Starscream wants to be punished for this <laughs> yeah Maybe even wants to be killed for this. Maybe even um, uh, doesn't believe that he's worth uh, being left alive. But he decides he's not going to kill Starscream and he vocalizes this to him. And his reasons are, it sort of goes, they sort of mention it in this first season, but it's a different uh, perspective. In this season, he says um, he he keeps Starscream around because... um, uh, He's become predictable. He's become predictable and it kind of amuses him to, uh, to to allow him sort of a little bit of power and then to, uh, to to take it away. In this comic, he said he keeps Starscream around knowing he's going to stab him in the back like Iago because it keeps he, Megatron, on his toes. Yeah. If he didn't have Starscream there being as utterly backstabbing and as utterly wretched, he would... Become he would complacent. become complacent, and he would just know that the rest of the, uh, the Decepticons would follow him blindly, and that would weaken him. That's the that's the key thing I've always interpreted about their relation: the fact that it's that 
keep your friends close and enemies close it's the yeah. fact that you have someone like Starscream who will always try to usurp you yeah. and like whenever you make an example out of him you're making an example out of him and this is your second in command and if Megatron's willing to do that to his second in command imagine what he'll do to a grunt soldier yeah it's funny I looked at that differently um, the way that I interpreted Megatron keeping Starscream around in this show is this is the first competent Starscream that we've ever seen the impression's always given that Starscream's a, a skilled warrior, the best flyer, et cetera, et cetera. But this, we actually see it. He can, he can fight, he can fly, he can scheme. Um, so he's kind of earned that position. And, and Megatron claims to tolerate it for amusement and whatnot, but he's, he's actually good. Yeah. No, actually, because... Um as, as, as sorry, as I said before, they are, they are building off um, the Fallen, Fallen War Cybertron. They did actually... Um, they did take quite a lot from that. And in War of, War of uh, Cybertron, um, Starscream, he was a commander. He had quite an important job in Cybertron, guarding Dark Energon. And Megatron beseeched him. Like, he asked him to be second in command because of how good he was as a general and as a soldier. And, like, if you come to the series knowing that, it's like, it, it makes a bit more sense why he would have this person as his second in command. I mean, in this they have they do show him a bit more pathetic, mm. but he he does prove to be quite a competent warrior and a yeah. schemer, and he, he he's actually he was known to be quite a noble warrior back in the Cybertronian days. Yeah, his he voice has his uses. Yeah, mm. he's voiced with dripping malice by Steve Bloom, who pulls off a very similar performance to uh, the Green Goblin in Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, also, he's Amon uh, in uh, Legend of Korra. But here, um, it's it's almost like he's a, a held together, bolted down Joker. Yeah. In uh, that, uh, he ha- he's very aware that he has to put on a show for everyone, and um, he has to present himself as a ruthless leader. I have this distinct feeling that in the many years of being under Megatron, it's slowly changed like his personality, the way he's always had to pander to Megatron. Yeah. That he, like that's his default setting. Like he'll show he'll come off as pitiable and incompetent, but that's at the point where he's most likely to strike. Again, rock bottom, this one where Bulkhead and Miko are trapped in the cave. Um, Jack's in there as well, and Megatron also gets uh, uh, caved in on and is stuck behind rock. And Jack, in attempting to get Miko and uh, Bulkhead out, comes across Megatron. And there's this wonderful back and forth where you just see Megatron's head glaring out at Jack, and he says, Go on. And I have that star scoop. Go on, do it. You'll never have a better chance. In a kind of, you know, he's totally unafraid to die at that point. He's just driven by hate and power. And um, Jack decides to just leave him. He's not going to save him, but he's not also going to uh, be be vengeful either when his enemy's down. Um, but Starscream, immediately when he finds out Megatron's caved in, runs away and then has this little argument with himself where he's like, I'm away, I'm out of here. (laughs) But then the other Decepticons will come around, they'll rescue him, he'll come after me, and that honour should be granted only to Starscream. (laughs) That is exactly the thing, the fact that it's it's not the fact that... It's the the pure fact that he doesn't want someone taking his credit for doing... for saving Megatron after he immediately betrayed him. Yeah. 
It's like, it, you shouldn't need the credit. This should be just what loyal people will be doing anyway. I just can't quit you, Megatron. <laughs> <laughs> he has become that kind of level of, you're right, dependent on him. Yeah. That, so, that continues too. That, yeah, yeah. When he finds Megatron floating in space after the the uh, the mini series, and Megatron is apparently dead, um, he yanks the dark energon out of him so that he's just a floating corpsicle, and Starscream takes the body back and uh, and they they put it in the um, uh, the Decepticon space. Only could sound Soundwave made sure to follow him. Yeah, um, but it's almost like he would have wanted to do that anyway. Just because, like, to, to be yeah. finally rid of Megatron, I, I think there may be something in that, what Megatron said about Starscream feeling deep down he isn't actually worthy to rule. He constantly refers to the fact that he is, and he deserves the honor, and he, he needs to be uh, the, the king, but um, I, I'm not sure he has a, a long-term game plan for it. Starscream has yeah. masses to prove. Mm. I don't know why it's not gone into yet, and I hope it will do later, but um, he clearly is trying to prove something, whether to himself or to the other Decepticons, is unclear. Dude's um, got daddy issues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the things they touch on in the game is the fact that the reason why he's guarding the Dark Energon is that he's sort of been carted off away, like he's supposed to it's supposed to be some big honour, but he knows it's more of a punishment. Mm. And it's like constantly throughout his career he's always been that person who's never like to him he's never been recognized for his accomplishments and i think that's something that's just carried on throughout his life and especially with someone like megatron who he's not the sort of person to say you've done a good job yeah uh, he has no vision yeah he has no vision when he gets in command he follows megatron's orders just to collect the energy on yeah. And he has no vision of himself to carry on and see where the Decepticons go. I think it was interesting, episode 13, I think it was, where he says he doesn't actually follow the Decepticon cause. No. So he's actually lost. And I think the ideal moment for Starsky, when he realises that, and he goes rogue, and he goes by himself, that's like he's almost found his place, I feel, at yeah. that point. They have allegiances to no one. I was just going to say, it's actually kind of nice to hear Steve doing a voice that doesn't either sound like uh, Spike or like Logan. <laughs> <laughs> Some of his voices do tend to be a little too samey. Yeah, great. Found- Vincent also sounds exactly like uh, Wolverine. I found it a, a nice homage to the G1. Um, yeah. it, I wouldn't say sounds like it, but it definitely captured it. Yeah, yeah it, it conveys yeah. The, the essence of Starscream without having the the sort of whine to it. it. It misses that sort of, you know how G1 Starscream can be quite whiny? Yeah. You're either a liar or you're stupid. I'm stupid! I'm stupid! <laughs> yeah, he comes off more pitiable than pathetic. Well, no. That's wrong. He comes off more pitiful than grovel. No, that's wrong. <laughs> There's an answer more, in there somewhere. More pitiful than That's whiny. Right. Than whiny. Like, yeah. at, at least in this series, he does seem like a threat. In in the G1, he just seems like a clown. Well, exactly. Because he killed... He's the one that kills Cliffjumper at the beginning. Mm. He's also... The, he's dangerous. Yeah. There's a point where he's groveling to RC, and then she uh, turns her back on him in disgust, and then her eyes widen, and he's horribly injured her and stabbed her in the back, effectively. And you're just like, oh, my God. 
I can't believe you allowed yourself to fall for that, RC. But at the same time, he's very convincing in his patheticness. But he's he's a snake, he's, effectively. Yeah, he's pathetically dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you can't trust Starscream, but you can always trust Starscream to be Starscream. <laughs> I'm really glad they recaptured that dynamic because it's barely in the uh, the Bay films. Starscream is there and he grovels and he dribbles, <laughs> but he never seems dangerous. Once again, realizing the potential of the nostalgia without going yeah. and, and harvesting everything from it. It's almost a disservice to Prime to compare it to the movies because it's so far apart in terms of where their priorities lie. Unfortunately, they sucked themselves in that regard, though, with the design aesthetic. That's true. But at the same time, they did have to have a certain similarity to what's wildly popular right now. If they went too far off the mark, then um, they they may have difficulty, let's face it, selling toys. And I have a a, a grudging respect for Hasbro for basically letting this one ride. They they were in close cahoots with uh, Hasbro themselves in terms of how to to get the toys looking like the cars and the cars looking like the toys. Because obviously Hasbro start with the car and then turn that into a robot. The animators start with a robot and turn that into a car. Um, But somehow in the middle of it all, the toys and the animated versions both look fantastic in both forms. Mm. And Hasbro kept back from the meddling they didn't like give them remits of oh everyone has to say each other's name every five seconds otherwise <laughs> that it won't sell the toys and we we need this many episodes with bumblebee because we are uh you know we're not selling enough bumblebees right now in fact that might be why bumblebee and prime are kept a little to the back because bumblebee and prime toys are the ones that outnumber all the rest of them and have sold like hotcakes for many, many years to the point where every kid who likes Transformers has got a Bumblebee and a Prime. Mm. So um, I suppose it's it's a knock-on effect from both their overexposure in the movies and their overclogging of the toy aisle. <laughs> Megatron. Now, this is Frank Welker back as Megatron, something you don't really appreciate until you actually see he and Prime together. It's a special moment if you've uh, been into G1 before. Obviously, we've had uh, Peter Cullen as Optimus Prime since 2007, and that was huge. But with Hugo Weaving as Megatron, and he wasn't even really Megatron for all these years, suddenly you've got one that looks and sounds and is the Megatron of old, but with just enough of a new spin to make him more dangerous, less bumbling, and actually quite frightening at times. I actually find uh, his interpretation of the voice this time mm. drastically different than than G one in a very pleasant way. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like he threw it out. Like it, to me, anyway, it really doesn't sound like it much at all. Occasionally, he'll say something. Occasionally, he'll he'll grunt or sigh, and you it's hear deeper, it. But definitely, oh, by far, and more intelligent. Like he he, he actually yeah. he speaks in an intelligent nature. I could understand why he would be pissed. After Hugo Weaving came in, because they were because uh, the makers of the first film were like, "Nah, he sounds too old. He's like, too old, am I?" <laughs> and then delivers something that uh, I mean, it's it's world class. Apparently, when he's doing his voiceover stuff, if everyone at home and you know listening to the podcast can do this, hold your hands up in front of your face like an evil wizard, and basically just like uh, you know, one hand on either side of your head, palms out, fingers outstretched. And, you know, that's how he delivers this voice. And that's how he uh, 
powers it forwards Let, and he really gets into the zone for it. Let's be honest. If you ever give a Megatron um, speech, that's how you're going to do it either way. Yeah. Even if you don't want to, it just demands that sort of that expression. Yeah. You've got to square your shoulders. You've got to pull yourself up to your full height and deliver something which would terrify your enemies and terrify, but also inspire your followers. You know what makes the concept of Megatron and this delivery of Megatron so great is that he knows he's not wrong. Yeah. yeah, that that makes the great that always makes a great villain. It, 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 you can if you're going to go for the comical satire or or just comical in general, you can do the the fingers together, muahaha, um, and that that can be entertaining on a different level. But if you want to create a true watchable, likable villain, they have to know they're right. Yeah, it's one of the things I learned when writing D and D adventures. If you want a really good villain. Uh, and it applies to most things. The villain has to be the hero of his own story. Yeah. And he is. Yeah, this Meg- is Megatron oh, in is. this one. He doesn't gloat anywhere near as much as the previous uh, Megatron. He doesn't even really bicker with sounds. Sound screen? Just create a portman. <laughs> <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't even bicker anywhere near as much with Starscream. He's almost dismissive of him. Uh, and rather than laughing to himself it's really disconcerting when he gets an idea after looking at something or someone or something which presents new information to him and then grins just this quiet shark-like grin and it's like oh christ bad things are going to happen because of what's just occurred yeah that that is the best way of describing his actual smile and this is shark-like yeah i almost like it better when he doesn't the the part where jack comes up to him with the drill in the mm. cave and he tells Jack, now's your chance. Kill me. He delivers that line with such sincerity that the, you have no choice to believe that he believes he's done and he's going to allow Jack to finish him off. There is no deception there. There's no slag grin. There's no irony, nothing. Jack decides not to, and he pulls away and then he pulls his hand up, revealing that all along he could have, he could have grabbed the front of the drill and ended Jack in a, in a heartbeat. And you there, there's no sign of that at all it's almost like he's got a special death plan for every person for every human <laughs> for every autobot in his own mind he's like i've got a special death for you and when it, the time comes i'm going to deliver it <laughs> he's very much a gladiator somebody who main interaction with other beings was to kill them okay. he's lost his he's lost his cause hasn't he oh yeah his cause, his cause has been twisted he was a social reformer in the, at the start of it, and now is a conqueror. He wants to be the dictator. Everyone he, under his power. He's literally the embodiment of megalomania, where he just—he's all about power. Like I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You get the feeling that even if he achieves his goal, he'll never be happy. I, I think that the goal was something that he stumbled upon to get the troops. Mm. I, I think that the power was really all that he wanted, but the goal is something that allowed him to amass an army. The, there's a lot of dark energy on tied up in, in who Megatron is in this. It, it actually, it, it seems like a, 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 a necromancy in terms of techno necromancy. If, that, if that's the thing, like uh, you can technomancy, technomancy. <laughs> there's, there's a, hey, there's that's a, a natural thing. Yeah, yeah, that is a thing. Okay. 
Well, it's a thing. They, they, this dark energy brings um, bots back to life, and uh, it, it works on Cliffjumper, but it also works on Megatron. There's something unnatural and a little bit rotted and wraith-like about Megatron. His face underneath yes. the mask seems scarred and like it's starting to recede, and it's almost like he's become so twisted that inside this armor, he's like Sauron. He's he's what well, he's insane now, but. He has it very much together as well. It's it's weird. It's, he hasn't really um, he hasn't lost his reason. He's just lost his what could be interpreted as humanity if he ever had any. There's also something uh, peculiarly animalistic about him. It, yes. it struck me that this is the most organic I've ever seen Megatron, and he's the most organic looking of any of the um, of uh, the Transformers. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I I love his design, the fact that he is just this twisted, bladed sort of giant. Like, among any Transformers, he is one of the biggest. Yeah. In fact, yeah. there are very few who even match his size. Like, it seems like Optimus only matched his size once he became a Prime. Yeah. And the fact that he has this domineering pe- presence along with the skills and the charisma to back it up just... He's someone, like you'd bow in his presence when faced with him. And he's not even in um, most of the series. For a lot of the time, he's mm-hmm. uh, either absent or comatose, but he's this lurking presence that you know is going to return. And when he does, it's, again, it's like kind of like Sauron. It's like, oh, this shit just got real. Like, he's constantly the... Con- the He's the dealer of consequences to people's actions, whether they be Decepticon or Autobot. Yeah. Like, if something goes bad, somehow it aids Megatron. There's also the fact that his name is one letter away from Megaton. Yeah. Which kind of makes him automatic doom. (laughs) This was just something that was thought up in half an hour back at Hasbro in 1984. I I have no idea how the copyright law works, but maybe you guys can tell me if you guys have this over there too. But we have a brand of car batteries over here called Megatron. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know how that works or how that happened, but it's, it's true. And it's really cool. It puts energy on in your tank. (laughs) I'd buy a car battery called Megatron. Yeah. I I don't own a car, but just in case. (laughs) But yeah, it was, this was just the name given to a Japanese gun from like the mid seventies. It was nearly 10 years old when they named it. And it was like, you know, his original form, if you look at the original toy of Megatron, is laughable. Yeah. It's uh, it's put- just small and silly looking and very blocky, and it, it shouldn't be as terrifying as it is. He, the original gun didn't even have the um, the scope mounted on it, so he wouldn't have had the arm cannon. I think I mentioned that one before. But that that defines him as this, you know, this horrible weapon who is very certain that what this thing on his arm is for, and that is the symbol of his power, and that is that his constant threat to people and uh, to to get what he needs to get done. Not even... Only, sorry, sorry, go on. The only person who's comfortable around him is Soundwave. Yeah. Uh-huh. All, the other, all the other Decepticons are wary of him, following through fear, and a bit uncertain about him. And almost when he gets a dark Cybertron, you almost think, where is Megatron and where's a dark Cybertron mixing? Yeah. Yeah. And the Decepticons are not even sure of themselves what personality he is, whether he's always been like that or has the dark Cybertron enhanced his. I want dark energon. Sorry. Dark energon. 
I wonder right, if in, any the, of us... in the Headmaster series, they call it Cyberdon. The, the <laughs> planet is called Cyberdon. That's an official Transformers production. Oh, God. I wonder if any of us had a, a psychology background could determine. It, it's uh, Soundwave and Megatron, particularly uh, in this one, seem to be, they seem to have uh, like a, two sides of a psychopath. Megatron is the, the, the talking, the the gloating isn't the right word, but describes his actions, whereas Soundwave agrees with everything Megatron does and says nothing. But she's his squeaky from. She's, uh, so, I say she. <laughs> Soundwave is, and this is described, whenever female psychopaths turn up, they almost always have to have a male that turns them, that basically just pushes them over the edge. And it almost seems like um, Soundwave was just doing what he was doing for all these years. Then he met Megatron, and suddenly that gave him all the focus he needed. Well, that's, Soundwave is like Soundwave is one of my favorite, like if not one of my favorite Transformers. Yeah. And mm. the fact that he basically he grew he came from the gladiatorial ring alongside Megatron. Right. So obviously, spending all that time, like I get the feeling, like Soundwave is Megatron's only old friend. Like mm. he's the. Can we like, say friend at this point, or just confident? No, I I truly believe they are friends because yeah. if you look look at the way Megatron treats everybody else, even even Optimus, Megatron never has a harsh word to say to Soundwave at all. Mm-mm. Like everybody says, like you may think Starscream is his second in command, but Soundwave is always like Soundwave's his eyes, his ears, his right hand, and the fact that. Throughout the series, Soundwave is the person he sends to get things done. Yeah. Like, Soundwave never fails his main objective. That's why it bothers me so much that in the 86 movie, Starscream just chucks Megatron out. I still function! Uh, and Soundwave's like, yeah, you may as well. I get a shot of being a leader at this point. Basically, me picking Megatron up and taking him to Astro Train's backside, that's about as far as my loyalty goes. Bollocks! <laughs> I think so, uh, that Soundwave should have had a real problem with that. Mm. Yeah. What was interesting found about the design of Soundwave, like it oh, to yes. the yeah. mouth of Sauron, the crown was almost like the, the, the mouth of Sauron's from the Lord of the Rings. Nice. Go, going back to Alex's reference to Megatron almost being like Sauron. Yeah. Then you've got almost Soundwave who doesn't speak, but is Megatron's mouth almost. He's definitely uh, similar to the Witch King as well. Yeah, like I, I love his whole backstory of that. He's taken a vow of silence. Like that's what they, that, that's how they explain that he never talks. Like, oh, when did they say that? Oh, oh, sorry, it's, ah. it, it's a small. <laughs> that's little okay. Thing. It informs a bit on his character. But I, yeah. I, I said when we were watching it today, Sharon, I reckon he can speak. He just doesn't. Yeah, mm. he he can speak, but he's literally taken a vow of silence. Like mm-hmm. during. The whole um, Cybertron in war, something happened, and he took a vow of silence. And I've, I've sort of, sort of, it's never explained, but I've made up this own my own little story of <laughs> like the one time he did fail Megatron, and he it might may almost cost Megatron his life. Of course, that's just me making stuff up, but I like <laughs> I like the idea that Soundwave is Megatron's only true friend. Yeah. Boy, the relationship that they have, I'm almost picturing that being a lot more dark. And actually, this show isn't too far off. Soundwave said something, and 
he didn't he failed Megatron and almost got him killed, like everything he said there. And then he didn't decide not to speak. He ripped out his own voice box. Yeah. Oh. That's, I mean, it's, it's, I was thinking before watching this, how could you make Frank Welker's sound wave even scarier? Just have him not speak at all. And he's got that kind of like, uh, it, it, there's no eye in it, but it's that kind of, it's like a mirrored. It, it is a faceplate. Faceplate. Yeah. Like he's never taken it off. Yeah. He's actually closest, you know, in terms of Hasbro characters to Snake Eyes. Yeah. Silent, in, 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 unreadable. The fact that he has such a unique design, like the wings of his plane are his arms, and mm. the only time you get a sense of his like true strength is that one time when Arachnid, well, that issue with Arachnid comes yeah. up. <laughs> oh, you can spoil that bit. Arachnid decides with in in Megatron's absence at the end, she's going to run the fucking show. N- not just that, she's going to actively abandon Megatron. Yeah. All the time, Starscream's done something. Like, at the very least, Megatron's been in the background. Like, he's sort of given Starscream that little bit of power. That and Starscream's always said, you know, until our Lord returns. You know, like, he kept up appearances with Soundwave, who was yeah. always riding his ass. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't say no, clearly. He doesn't shake his head. He doesn't wave <laughs> his finger. He doesn't, he doesn't do any traditional language form of no. He, he knocks her on her butt, humiliates her, and then goes back about what he's doing. He actually never really threatens her aside from the stepping on her head, but he doesn't even apply pressure. Like, mm. there's no, it's just, he says no without a single recognizable visual language form. Just body language. Yeah. And um, there's, there's a point, I mean, his transformation is a drone. Yeah. That's brilliant because and, that makes him even scarier. This this entirely cold, shut off machine that will destroy your house, your family, your home, your town, and then just fly away remotely piloted by someone who's completely disengaged from the whole scenario. And he has his own drone. Yeah, and he has the laser beak. But it, it, there's kind of it's, a it's, quiet political statement against uh, uh, the American usage of drones there. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just me inferring, but yeah. I think that ties in with uh, his, her robot form as well, though, because the idea that uh, the face is mirrored, that the only sound that is produced is replications of other what other people have said, recordings yeah. being played back at them, that's either to, uh, to torment or to uh, remind or, to you know, point, the, it's, yeah. it can be used in so many different contexts and is used. There's always a sense, I, I get the impression that whenever a recording is played back, there's a little element there of there's a reason why, yeah. and it's often very needly. And Soundwave seems like kind of an arm of Megatron, almost like being uh, working so closely with Megatron has given Soundwave a uh, a dimension, a a forward motion of his own. So yeah, that moment where he squares off against Arachnia is that moment that I was wishing for in the original movie, where Sound, uh, Soundwave should have knocked back Starscream and said, "Nope, well, there is one leader of the Decepticons; he still functions." Exactly. He is acting in Megatron's behalf at that point. 
there's another super creepy moment, by the way, when uh, um, Miko and uh, the, the kids are trying to um, fix some sort of technological situation. And Miko takes a photograph using her phone of Soundwave. Oh, just yeah. snaps yeah. him. Yeah. And then Soundwave, rather than trying to snatch the phone off her, turns around and just goes click, click. And his face just shows that he's taken a photograph of them. And then he flies away. And it's like, oh, God, checkmate. Because <laughs> nobody else would think... Hey, what about these children that always hang around the Autobots? Yeah. This might be a bit important. Yeah. That's a scary moment and extremely well handled. I, f- I feel like we didn't really do Bulkhead enough justice. He's my favorite character in this one. Possibly only, uh, like, he's, he's almost neck and neck with RC. I love Bulkhead and how um, uh, how simple he is, uh, how, how fun-loving he is, how almost like he shouldn't really be fighting Yep. You know, he should be doing other stuff that's, you know, basically he should be the in, the, in an Autobot, like, destruction yard, just smashing down buildings so that new ones can be built instead. He's literally the civilian in their team. Yeah. I think he's the one that's still maintained who he was before everything. He's still yeah. the guy he was before. He's not become jaded or, or cynical. He do, he's not full of hate. Yeah. I mean, none of the Autobots are full of hate, but RC has allowed the war to really drain away. Um, like, if you took the war away from her, I don't know what she'd do. I think part of that, part of the thing that helped her is the fact that he's part of the Wreckers. And when you see all the people who were, like, were in the Wreckers, they seem like very, like, they still have that personal thing about them where, like, there might be this war going on. But I still mm. have sort of the things that I'm still interested in. Like, the fact that Knockout is still, no, is it Knockout? Yeah, it's knockout. The red. The, he's still he's obsessed about cars and driving and his paint job. Mm, he's like, vain. very vain, <laughs> and that is a weird like that's something that's come about from becoming a having. He's one of the few or Decepticons with a car with a car form, yeah. and he loves the fact that he has one. It makes I, him so morally ambiguous, though. Yes. I I really really love uh, Knockout. He is mm-hmm. uh, with Ratchet. He is my favourite character, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that he's he has no real commitment to the Decepticons, even to the end when he's smarming around um, uh, Megatron. It's so. You can see he's lying through his fenders. He doesn't mean a word of it. He is just doing whatever is um, most appropriate to get him out of the situation. And how is he different from Starscream in that regard? He doesn't want power. He doesn't no. want power. He, he doesn't. He's, he's have, all about self-preservation. And he doesn't that's have it. daddy issues either. He, he he's not out to prove anything. I I have a feeling that I think. One of the key things about this is that he was a Decepticon medic, and when you take that into fact, like how often does his Decepticon side need a medic? I think he's very he was more of a mercenary than anything, mm-hmm. similar to um, Arachnid, where he he was just there to do his job and take whatever they were giving to him and carry on with his life. Mm-hmm. Under you certain also... circumstances, he would probably work with the Autobots if it was actually to his advantage. He but he he could never um, follow them because he doesn't give a toss about anyone. That's it, isn't not saying anything. Ah, you bastard. Oh, see, I was just going to play along. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, you know, one of the things, and this show is missing a lot of terrible things from kids' shows, but it has things that are, that are part of kids' shows, but it's missing. It has no oafs. There's no Decepticon oaf, and oh. there's no Autobot oh. oaf. Closest is Breakdown, who's just a blunt instrument, and Jane, but working on the wrong side. 
Yeah, but still not. It's not play. It's never played for the laughs. It's, it's never yeah, it's played. Not they never say. They never say duh. Yeah, they're never like. There's never like Three Stooges um, related stuff with the Decepticons. I think I talked across Sharon. You were talking about Knockout. I was just going to say that his whole um, ambiguity would play nicely into the idea of him being a medic. Mm. That you, the thing about doctors, especially battlefield doctors, is that they usually try to remain detached from the sides that are being taken because ultimately their training is about repair and the preservation of life which kind of goes against the idea of of fighting a war anyway so i love the idea that um that in a uh, a good versus evil struggle ratchet and knockout are kind of the meat in the middle points Mm. and if you think about it knockout's been around the earth for a long time like he's been doing what the transformers want everybody else to do he's just been driving along getting a few car races every now and again Mm. and just keeping himself looking pretty it's only (laughs) it's only when starscream calls him to tend to megatron that he decides to actually step into battle and he gets forced in you get the feeling that he's been forced into this conflict yeah like now that he's on megatron's radar he's not allowed to leave he doesn't want to risk his ass for this war he doesn't care but there is a possibility that if he turns away he'll get shot in the back See how he reacted when he lost the door. Yeah. That's just a thing attached to his arm that does nothing. See how he reacted when Starscream deliberately scratched him. He was screaming and... Yeah! Oh, you, you, you wait till you see how he gets when Not he gets really scratched up. He, oh, yeah. You're not happy. Oh. <laughs> Takes him some sort of resentment from Knockout and Breakdown in terms of... There's that quote from Starscream where he talks about why would you be a car, essentially... Yeah. It's almost like two class system with the Decepticons. Like you got to be a flyer. Yeah. You know, if you're a car, you're a lower type of Decepticon, lower cast. Yeah. Yeah, they they literally do have classes. I believe that the um they have a slaver class, and I think those are the yeah. cars. G one fans, did the Stunticons ever get any shit for it? Not that I can remember. No, no but they they were born out of necessity, just like the aerial bots. Yeah, and the Dinobots. <laughs> well, I, the, well, I can't remember which comic it is. It actually, gives a really good explanation as to why the Dinobots are dinosaurs. It's it's basically for the were, Cybertron. Uh, no, it's before that. There's one. Basically, they were a commando unit. Was it the oh, yeah. one? Is the Shockwave um, Spotlight where he that they he and the Dinobots journey to Earth, bill, you know, millions of years ago, and they meet dinosaurs, and so. They, uh, they they take those forms to, to make them more um, formidable. Yeah, I think it's someone yeah. nice. There were units somehow ended up getting stranded on Earth for a bit, and mm. that's why the dinosaurs. That's where the whole concept for the Beast Wars came from. Yeah. Sorry, small right. little thing. There is a comic tying together um, Fall of Cybertron and Prime. Oh, yeah. It's all, it's all about the Dinobots. What's it called? Uh, um, one sec. Ah! Must know. <laughs> is it the Transformers Prime prologue? There's like a four-issue limited series. Uh, I no, it has its own issue. I forgot where it's is gone. It Fall of Cybertron. Is it called Fall of Cybertron? No, that's. It was a comic oh, verse, isn't it? Ah, oh, sorry. Um... I'll tell you what, Jerome. While you're looking for that, let's talk about Breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. Breakdown played by Adam Baldwin, world-class, mm. real-life asshole. Um, but also extremely good at playing someone like Jane Cobb, who, again, 
has no real allegiances, but um, is given the the uh, the opportunity to to behave as he as he wants to behave uh, as as breakdown. One of my favorite episodes with him, aside from Operation Breakdown, where um, Bulkhead actually rescues him and he says, "Why'd you come back for me?" In in, in a kind of you know, <sighs> what's the best way of putting this? Accusatory. Accusatory way. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, is uh, Oh, what's it called? Something attraction, the the, the uh, magnetic. Oh, that is metal attraction. The one where Bulkhead gets RC stuck to his back. Hmm. Yeah. And then break. I don't think I've got any more to that actually. And then breakdown gets it right now. All I'm doing is spoiling a great visual gag for people who haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is a hilarious visual gag. Yeah. You don't want that. Okay, I'll, I'll cut that bit out. It's, it's great fun. Um. How do I speak more about breakdown? It's clouded. His loyalties are clouded. Yeah. Especially when his life's being saved by Bulkhead from Mech. And the Autobots, because Megatron doesn't want to come for him, considers him weak to get captured by humans. It is interesting when you see that the uh, the Decepticon's lack of values uh, challenged by the Autobots' overabundance of them. You, you get the distinct feeling that he's looking for a fight, but he still wants that camaraderie. That's why he's always been together with Knockout, mm. that he's used to having somebody else's just being part of a team. Whereas Decepticons, you're just part of a, you're just part of Megatron as far as he's concerned. Yeah. Mm. And his Firefly co-star Gina Torres turns up as the genuinely unsettlingly sadistic Arachnia, like borderline for a kids show. Actually, yes. she's she's frightening, and um, I don't know how much she, uh, how close she is to Black Arachnia from Beast Wars. Uh, any Beast Wars fans? Yep, she is very similar. Yeah. Basically, that they wholesale brought her from it. Yeah, I was really um, surprised they didn't just use the full name. Like they call they didn't even call her Arachnia. She's Arachnid. Yeah, Arachnid. Oh, sorry, I did, did I say Arachnid? It's, like I said, it's very close. I think she was also in uh, Transformers Animated, wasn't she? I think so. Sure. No one's sure. seen Animated, sure. have they? No. I tried. I couldn't get through it. I think basically... Ain't I a stinker? Basically, she became very popular because they brought her all, all the way to the finale of Beast Machines, the actual finale, and she ended up having... She actually changed size to be with the... I forget what the Autobot equivalents of Beast Machines Maximals. are. Maximals, Maximals. yeah. They, she actually switched sides and she became she became one of the core team. So it made it made sense to me why they'd bring her back because back when she was a villain, like she was very much that hunter, fall into your trap, eliminate elimination sort of person. Where if you fall into a den, you're pretty much dead. Okay, Black Arachnia confirmed for animated. She was in it. Okay. Um, folks, if you guys really did like uh, Transformers Animated, again, you've got to tell us because uh, it's the the point of entry is punishing, to say the least, to try and get into that. So if it got good, you need to tell us when, which episodes to watch, and uh, what there is to really uh, to gain from that show. Because it went on for several series. And, um, and you know, a, a lot of Transformers fans missed it. And, you know, it, it's kind of... There were there was a long period. I mean, basically, it went the Generation One series one, two, three, and a little tiny mini series. Then you got Beast Wars, then Beast Machines, then there were these sort of very anime inspired ones, 
um, which kind of strayed far away from the original um, premise. Well, they were actual anime. They were Japan. Yeah, they, they were Japan. Oh, right, right. They went back to their original creators. Oh, okay. So, so then after that, it was, I think, animated came after those. Uh, no, there was, um, there was a series where they first used, like, purely CGI in 2D worlds, and it, it revolved around these minicons. Mm-hmm. Oh, Marder. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, but that was, that was Japan, too. Oh, right. Okay, so, yeah, basically, yeah, it was animated, and then that actually ran parallel with the first movie. So then with this one coming out, it's almost like a lot of G1 fans had kind of given up for lost the chances of seeing something of the kind that they liked on the small screen again, which is why this feels like such a hard sell for us. Like, you know, we're like, well, watch it. It's really good. And, um, it's, it it was, it's hard to even sell to G1 fans. That's how hard it is. I, I know I keep, I keep harping on this, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I get the f- distinct feeling it was because of the the response to the um, War and Fall of Cybertron, because those came out during when the movies were, but they were G1 sort of they they became official canon for G1. Yeah, and like a lot of like fans latched onto that, and it seems like um, Prime came about from the fact that the people who were interested in it. St- attached themselves to those games, yeah. Especially because the movies were flopping. Well, not flopping, ruining, they were, ruining were, yeah. story. They were doing incredible amounts of money and, and little else. Add to the parallel of there were still movie games coming out. Yeah, all of them awful, and they were being c- compared directly with the other game series because they they just use their engine for the. Think the last two. I don't know because I mean, War for Cybertron. These these were made roughly parallel. Um, War for Cybertron, the first of these two games, came out in June 2010, and um, the way this worked is it, it went into development in late 2009, um, as in Prime. It did. Hang on, let me just double check. And they had less than a year to deliver something that would normally take them two years. So again, this is an incredible feat of animation wizardry that they could actually come out with something that was not only really quite good for the time that they had to uh, to put it together but you know series best for for the for the franchise mm. so they kind of ran parallel so you got uh, prime came out in uh it was originally broadcast in sd i might add on the hub in november 2010 so that was a few months after war for cybertron suddenly got uh, a lot of adult males going oh actually we really like transformers and transformers lore again uh, I suppose that the law does s- creep in. They're very good about not going thousands of years ago. And I've said this several times in, in, in it, but you get, you pick up little bits and bobs here and there. And when it matters, when it gets to the, the beginning and the end of the series are basically where you get all of the, the Cybertronian stuff. And, uh, it does it in a way that will satisfy and even, uh, you know, overjoy, uh, long time G1 fans. Because they, they deliver, and we're going to start spoiling the finale here, so if you really don't want to know about the finale, come back after the music.
they deliver Unicron. The chaos. (laughs) (laughs) Voiced by John Noble, Denethor from the Lord of the Rings, and uh, dude from Fringe. Yeah, massively popular show. And uh, yeah, how do you follow Orson Welles in a performance he couldn't give a toss about, yet was extremely good at? I had no idea that's who did, who did the voice. That's that's, yeah. that's doubly impressive now. And it, way back when we did, the, it seems like ages ago now, but it was only a few weeks, the original uh, um, uh, 86 film, I said something along the lines of, wouldn't it be cool if, like, Earth was Unicron? <laughs> and what did you say? Oh, do you realize how quiet I had to be? <laughs> I can almost hear you yeah. in, listening to it again, Neil, going... <laughs> I, I had the exact. I knew exactly that Neil just wanted to say, yeah, uh, mm, mm. Yeah, it was like, just, just wait, squirrel. But um, no, nah, uh, I was. We were thinking that when we were Shannon and I were discussing the '86 movie, like they could really have gone into you know how this came about. We never. I don't think I've uh, ever seen uh, uh, Transformers. Were, you know, where they seriously discussed what happened with Primus. I'm sure that must come into the G1 episodes. Somewhere. Yeah, it's in a comic. It's in the Legacy of Unicron. Okay, no, sorry, I mean the actual oh, ca- the cartoon. No, no, it's never covered. It. This is taken from. Yeah, no. Well, there, there's again, this is a, it's very difficult to uh, to pin down the full evolution and the history of the Transformers because there were so many writers in different mediums, yeah. unable to really communicate with each other. So it was really it was kind of you know a new writer would come along and retcon the series so that he kind of made sense of the various bits and bobs that had been delivered before. And um, it, it kind of fell to IDW to sort of reboot the whole of the G1 series in comic form and just sort of like go from a world where the characters introduced in the movie, in the 86 version, where they're like, you know, all the, the, the new Hasbro toys had been there since the beginning and they, they sort of made it cohesive. But you can't convey the comics to a wide audience. Comics are a niche audience. So somehow you have to get the flavor of that into a new continuity which again doesn't run parallel with the movie continuity so unicron what did you think of this particular finale folks so i have really mixed wild. feelings on it oh yeah yeah well i i liked i liked it as a concept i liked the 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 idea of him being the earth and, and everything like that and there's so many cool things you can do with that but i missed the planet eater Mm. I miss the yeah. thing munching planets. The the the, the multiple... Galactus. <laughs> yeah, really. Like it, we haven't even seen a real Galactus uh, on screen yet. Let alone, you know, like the the only we've gotten Unicron. We got and... a cloud. <laughs> oh, that <laughs> that counts. He was but, yeah. uh, he was working part time from Green Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> he gets around. Clouds got to eat. Yeah. <laughs> that cloud was in more movies than me. <laughs> Carry yeah. on, sorry. No, no, I, I mean, that's just it. Like, it's, I, I don't, it's, it's a funny thing because I don't want to knock it because the show did it really well. But my own expectations of it, like, we've been teased with Unicron. We were teased with him in Beast Wars. We were teased with him uh, in the Japanese stuff that I didn't really follow. But I, I kept hearing that, that he was involved in some way or another. Well, but we've the, the never. So called Unicron. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that was a whole series called Unicron. Yeah. We've never, but we've never ever gotten. Uh, the Planet Eater since since the movie, which is it, it just seems like a thing. Like it's almost like okay, so they won't do Unicron the Planet Eater. They won't do 
Galactus the Planet Eater. Has Hollywood and the TV subset decided that that's just too much for anybody to handle? Wait for Transformers 5. You will get the return of the cloud. <laughs> it'll be a cloud of techno-organic matter, but we'll get that back and it'll try to eat the Earth. And there'll be a MacGuffin and the Transformers will be chasing it and Optimus Prime will be leading the way again. It's going to happen, folks. I think part of it's the impending doom from the movie. And there wasn't that beat, maybe throughout the series, where there was an impending doom. Yeah. Uh, where Unicron could have been getting closer to Earth and munching, chomping planets. But when you, when the last few episodes come, it's like, a, it is really good. The con- like I said, the concept and everything about it, it's a bit of a surprise. All of a sudden, it's this prophecy that just falls into you, into yeah. your lap, and you're like, whoa, where's that come from? It's great as a G1 fan, but as a, maybe as a viewer, I would have liked it to be drip, drip feed, fed across about 13 episodes or so. Yeah. I do like that they managed to tie that one shall stand, one shall fall into prophecy. I usually, like, prophecy turns me off when they start talking about the chosen one. I'm just like, ah, yeah, don't care. But, uh... But I am the chosen one. But I am the chosen one. <laughs> but in this one, it was almost refreshing that they kept that side of things to to one side that's that's Prime's remit as in Optimus himself and he sort of keeps that you know it's his job the other bots his his small remaining army they can't really get embroiled in prophecy Bulkhead wouldn't know what to do with it Bumblebee RC they're just soldiers they're trying their best but um because we're not focusing on Prime we thus didn't get large amounts of you know the, the, the prophecy da 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 um but the thing I really liked about Unicron was the fact that they couldn't destroy him. The fact that he wasn't a giant planet eater that had to be destroyed before he ate the Earth. He's Cthulhu. <laughs> they have to put him back to sleep. There, You cannot kill Cthulhu. That's the point. The idea that they tied that in with the survival of the Earth and the fact that the Earth was is basically just rocks and sediment that have collected around a sleeping Transformer over the millennia... That created an enormous amount of... I mean, I knew that the Earth wouldn't be destroyed, but it created a tension where it's... This is unusual to actually face an enemy that you can't destroy. And to put it in much more of a conceptual state rather than it be something that you can whack. And they they gave us, you know, some nice sort of unicron bots made of rock that they could be a giant action sequence with. And there was that kind of, like, ode to serenity at the end where they were all trapped in a firefight with a closed door behind them and, you know, their captain trying to do his absolute best. Um, But again, the, the fact that it wasn't someone that can be punched or shot or blown up because we've seen a million big bads get destroyed in that same way. Um, and effectively, they could just have you know rewritten a few lines and had uh, um, Optimus destroy him, but somehow keep the Earth there. But this all comes down to something which uh, I've been thinking of recently, which is in all of these scenarios which become incredibly dire and there's um, you know th- 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 there seems to be no hope left. Balance can always be restored. It simply depends on what must be sacrificed. And that's where some really fantastic climaxes can come from. I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Because, um, I yeah. mean, ultimately, Unicorn had to be stopped. If it's a big bad that's going to do something so high stakes that it changes the universe, and, you know, if, if he's going to eat the Earth, of course he's going to be stopped. It's, it's kind of neither here nor there, but what they sacrificed to do that, it wasn't just about killing a Transformer. It was about the, what Prime had to decide to do with his the time he had given to him. One of the things I love about what Unicron represents is it's what it forces Megatron to do. The fact that he has to work with Optimus again. Mm. And, like, he's not... He's, He's not hiding his intentions. Like, the only reason I'm doing this is because he's not letting me be the harbinger of him. So, I'm going to put him to sleep, and then I'm going to conquer this plant myself. Yeah, it was a nice a nice way to force more humanity into Megatron. I don't know that I'd call it humanity, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Raw More playing nice, I, suppose. I think, is is the uh, the key to uh, Megatron's actions here because there seems to be a direct contradiction between the fact that he says uh, he's he's effectively begging Unicron to let him be his servant, and yet at the end he has that marvelous moment of Megatron is commanded by no one. Yes. it's almost like. Even if he'd been allowed to be Unicron's servant, he'd have had plans. There'd have been mm. something going on there that, that he'd have been pulled something out of his back pocket at the last minute. It's even character consistency with the earlier Megatron. Mm. You, you had the, I had the distinct feeling that he was just... What he thought Unicron was going to do is just give him a whole bunch of power and remain a planet. Like, he wasn't expecting him to have that sort of sway against him. And the fact that it gives it gives you this whole, like, mind struggle battle of um, Megatron, the fact, like, he refuses to be dominated. Like, unless I'm coming to you and saying, you can help me, this is not how things are supposed to go. Again, it's an incredibly high-tension moment when uh, there's... Uh, Megatron walks into their cave of his own volition and... That there's a sudden free son in the room like this should not be happening is he going to start killing Autobots left right and centre if you think about it of course he wouldn't Megatron is not the kind of person who would actually do this sort of last it's a suicide run if he does he might be able to take out all of them but he'd die in the process but there's that danger that he might be that insane there's that danger that he might just just shoot Optimus and then walk out calmly and the fact that the kids react, like Miko, because she can't process fear, reacts with anger and overcompensates. Yeah. It forces Prime into two decisions the last few episodes. Yeah. Decision to kill Megatron. All through the series, he avoids that. He hopes that he'll get his almost brother back and that he'll be one and of the same cause. But the start of it, he's forced into this decision and he's actually beating Megatron. Yeah. Until Megatron gets an influx of power from Unicron. His words are, Megatron must be destroyed, which is a, uh, a dire extension of the uh, Megatron must be stopped no matter the cost. So at this stage, he's taken a, a step forwards, and somehow this is absolutely in keeping with Optimus's character in a way that the psychotic, rip your spine out prime in the movies is not. He's turned a corner and he's got to the point where it's it's got to be him or the rest of the world. There's a comparison that you can make between 
the interpretation in this and the interpretation in the films that where the films keep this constant barrage he's on and on and on about freedom and how important freedom is but there's never any delineation about what kind of freedom he's talking about they're very specific in in prime that it's free it's about freedom of choice and this moment where uh, optimus says that megatron must be destroyed that's the only time he's ever decided to step over that line and say this person's choice needs to be taken away because they are just too dangerous. And I think that feeds into um, what I was going to mention before, but I didn't want to spoil too much about the end, um, where he permits others to make their own mistakes, to make their own choices. It's in his history that he became a prime because it was in him to become a prime, that he demonstrated the qualities necessary to take that role and that anybody could do that a decepticon could do that a human could could do do that that. a human could do that exactly Mm. this idea that it is all about freedom of choice and about um people looking at the the options available to them and choosing whether or not to do the right thing what's interesting about that is like was optimus prime given the choice to be optimus prime in terms of Orion Pax, and then he says it had it within him, and it doesn't really dwell whether he was given that choice. So, in essence, was his freedom of choice taken away? But if if you remember, he didn't actually become Optimus Prime until Megatron started the war. Um, he managed to convince the Council that what they were doing was wrong, and uh, that's the, he made them recognise the folly of the ways. It's only when um, the war for Cybertron became so bad that it was corrupting the core. The Primus actually gave him the um, matrix of leadership at that point. I don't think, like, he resigned himself to that fate. Because by that point, he'd sort of been forced into that role of leadership for mm. the Autobot side. Well, didn't, I, I just watched it, but I, my memory was failing me a little bit. Didn't he just go down to look for wisdom, not not for the matrix of leadership. It says that the council thought he could be a prime, but I thought he didn't go down to become a prime. Now he went down to see if, if he could help Primus. Cause obviously at that point it was the core was being corrupted. He was looking for yeah. some way being the person in the archives. He might've known some way of uh, healing their planet. And it was at that point that um, Primus chose him. Mm-hmm. Well, it, and that, I mean that kind of goes in with again not not really being a choice of his because if the mm. if I remember correctly the cartoons did the silly thing where he was made from three bots, really right? uh, the G one yeah the G one was he was made from uh, a girl bot that I can't remember the name Alita one Alita um, one yeah Alita one Orion Pax and what was the other one's name Alpha Trion they were damaged and rebuilt as Optimus Prime and then given the, the leader, uh, the matrix of leadership. Um, the uh-huh. comics did it very, very differently. But again, I don't, I don't think that it was a choice. I don't think that he's ever had a choice in any of the incarnations. Oh, there's a wonderful that- moment in uh, uh, the digital comic series, um, Transformers Autocracy, where he, uh, Orion, drifts into the center of this enormous ball of blue light that is, exists at the core of Cybertron. And it's um, it's the world that exists behind the world, and uh, he is 
basically it's it's a massive spiritual awakening for him and he's imbued with the wisdom of the primes ah uh, see they actually recreate that scene in beast machines ah, where when they yeah. find when basically beast machine takes place on um the on cybertron and mm-hmm. um pro- uh, well beast machines came first the autocracy was written fairly recently oh because literally he goes down to the center of Primus and he mm. meditates there and he has a spiritual awakening and basically the series takes a different direction from there as well. Are we talking yeah. Beast Machines or Beast Hunters here? Too many beasts in the Transformers. Uh, machines, type, right? Beast Machines are the one that followed Beast Wars. Beast yeah. Hunters is the one is that follows one Prime. Prime. Mm-hmm. Too many beast stuff in there. Um, <laughs> But there's so yeah, Megatron um, uh, offers to help them go to the center of Unicron to destroy him, ostensibly so that there will still be an Earth left for him to conquer. Um, and there's this, you know, the one of the all-time favorite moments for me in Transformers is when they all start walking off through the uh, the ground bridge, which is like a sort of a warp gate that the uh, the um, Transformers use to get about on Earth, um, and they all. You know, they they keep turning back to the humans who they're leaving behind in a kind of, you know, this may be the last time we see you. And Prime uh, talks to Jack and gives him what turns out to be the key to Vector Sigma, um, which is some kind of, I don't even know what that is because I'm not that much of a G1 fan. Um, If you watch season two, it comes Of course, yeah. Uh, And uh, it says it's the key to the ground bridge so that Jack doesn't realize the importance of what he's being given at this stage. And he doesn't realize that that Prime doesn't plan to come back. And the the music rises up. It's by um, uh, Brian Tyler. into the ground bridge and into the light and there's that sort of wonderful sort of uh, soaring moment and then when Prime actually takes down Unicron and and effectively puts him back to sleep puts Cthulhu back to sleep who is going to come back and eat the world he gives up himself and that's obviously a reversible situation but it, it it doesn't matter. It's that thing about the whole the idea of, you know, well, should sacrifice be permanent to, because uh, otherwise is it cheapened? Absolutely not cheapened in the mind of the person performing the sacrifice and because of the, what the knock-on effect that has on everyone else. The worst thing being that for Prime, he ends up uh, having lost all his memories as Orion, returns to the Orion Pax that he was before, having lost everything that made him Optimus Prime, and goes off with Megatron, somewhat bewildered. So the other Transformers consider him to be a turncoat. And not just that. If you notice, like his expression, you know how um, Ratchet said he looked very much like he was very much like Jack before yeah. he became Optimus. Like if you take notice, he he has like very like Jack makes those sort of facial um, 
facial experience like very very unsure of what to do and what situation is in like you see pure confusion on Orion Pax's face at that point I think a lot of that expression is uh, knowing what or being able to see what the right thing to do is but doubting whether you have the strength to do it mm. and Jack definitely has that too and at that point like at that for Orion Pax Megatronus was a mentor. Like he was someone to trust in. Like he was the person he turned to for when he had doubts. Like this person knows what to do. So it, it makes sense that even like being brought back to that mental state, he do what Megatronus tells him to do. Yeah. So it ends on this this wonderful note of of uncertainty and like things are now actually, I mean, Unicron's back to sleep, but things are worse than when they started. The Transformers, uh, the Autobots are now leaderless and uh, Ryan Pax is now working with the Decepticons who now have Megatron back. Everything's tilted in favor of the Decepticons because Unicron was going to obviously destroy everything. So the Decepticons win. Imagine if there wasn't a second series. Like Megatron has a better situation than he ever expected because he he went into that expecting Optimus to die as well. Mm. I'm or, pretty sure. And if he didn't, he, his his decision was you know I make no bones about this. As soon as Unicron's back to sleep, it's back on, and he was going to kill Prime while he lay there helpless. But something even better happened. Yeah. He got Orion Pax back, his protege at that point, that person who would follow him and had the amount of information at his fingertips that he just didn't have access to. All I need now are mines for molding. So, yeah, uh, personally, I am champing at the bit for season two. You both are disappointed. (laughs) No, I was just about to say, it only gets better. I think we'll probably end up reconvening to talk about those. Yeah. So uh, if you're listening to this right now, it will have come. uh, We recorded it far enough in advance. It's currently July, and uh, this will be going out in near, like, mid-October. So we'll have seen two and recorded two and three, and and so there'll be more. And, um, yeah, you're welcome, folks. (laughs) That's when my new baby arrives. Oh, nice. (laughs) That'll be the first podcast you can get to listen to. Yay! (laughs) Now, honey, here's how you do Transformers right. <laughs> cool. Thank you guys so so much for coming on. It has been an absolute joy talking to you all. Same here. Thank you. It's, it's it's good transformers. It's worth much. talking about. Yeah. It's and, and I'm that's that's the thing that I take away from these the, the stupid Michael Bay movies. But the, because these this wouldn't be here without them. Pacific Rim wouldn't be getting a sequel without them. The, the inane, the popular inane enables that same law to be done right. Mm-hmm. So we've said this one before, but uh, I'm, I'm very, very glad this happened. And principally because, as I said, I didn't even want to do a Transformers show because nothing yes. got me fired up like this. And I was... <laughs> so literally, when I heard you say that on the We Hate Movie podcast, I said, he hasn't watched Prime yet. He needs to watch Prime. Yeah. What is he doing? <laughs> well, this time I'm hoping I'm going to be like Josh at this point. You know how Josh basically got us all... Yeah, he was the, the guy who got us all hooked on Avatar. Oh, hang on. 
Nope. You got him hooked on it. <laughs> yep. Jerome. You are the dealer, Jerome. <laughs> you're, you're I'm the sound wave to Josh's Megatron. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please tell here. me that was recorded, because that would be awesome. <laughs> it was, it was. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jerome, for getting Josh into Avatar. And, and and thanks to me for getting everyone else into Transformers Park. Because, Jerome, you never mentioned this to me. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm fine with being just that little, that little push. Push <laughs> in the wilderness. Well, thank you guys all for coming on. And uh, if you guys want to, want to plug anything of yours, um, I will. Neil and Jerome, you can toss for this one. I'll let Jerome do it. Okay. Okay, um... Basically, we're doing something a bit different on Gay Burst um, because Silly Season is coming up. Oh, bear in mind, this is going to be out in October. Oh, yeah. Um, it's literally from October to oh, December. Right. Cool, cool. Okay. Basically, we're doing something a bit different because the new consoles are finally established and Silly Season is coming up. We will be covering some major releases over the next couple of months. So okay. look forward to that. Nice. Also, can I just Oops. like from? I'd like to get this one out there so we can give people time to play this. Replay I... for December is Back to the Future by Telltale. Ooh, oh, great game, great yeah. game. Andrew, uh, have you got anything you'd like to plug? You said there was another podcast you were going to pimp. Yeah, I just like to pimp the same coin. Great bunch of guys. Um, lovely chaps. Them. Lovely chaps. Very funny. Um, totally different sense. Well of humour at times and something off the, off the wall but brilliant same coin <laughs> the same coin folks and uh, Mike after this, it, go for it yeah um, Walter the Wicked is the webcomic www.walterthewicked.com very easy to find uh, if if everything works out the way I hope I'll be doing another run I call Waltober uh, <laughs> when this airs. And uh, basically, I increase the, the production run. And uh, Walter the Wicked is uh, very medieval and monster and magical theme. So I try if to take you, advantage of Halloween. Can I just say, if you're into D&D, go, go read it. It's freaking yeah. hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. And folks, if you would like to get hold of Transformers Prime, you can buy Season 1 in the UK on five different DVDs at around about a five or eight. You can buy the Australian Blu-ray, if you're very careful about that. I managed to pick it up for only £24 uh, from Australia uh, via eBay. Uh, Don't get the American Blu-ray. It's region locked and will not play in this country. Um, It's really worth getting um, that HD version, though, because uh, the, the difference is is significant and the animation really needs to be seen to be we never really talked about the animation but it's lush uh, it, it may just be because they're animating mechanical things and usually organic things look better in animation but it's it's um it's it's pixar it's early pixar level it's also not- can i point out you can recognize these transformers easily oh yeah mm, yes. they, yeah they do a smart thing with the transformations because i cup i have actually watched it frame by frame mm-hmm. they do a little thing where they they have a transforming animation from robot to near vehicle. Mm-hmm. Then they like switch in between a trans uh, pseudo transform vehicle, then switch back to the bot. Then they go straight to the vehicle transforming, mm-hmm. and those quick frames make it absolutely seamless, and it makes you think like that that just happened all yeah. as one. For seasons two, three, and the finale, Beast Hunters. Uh, season three is half the length of seasons one 
and 2. I I just went ahead and bought the R1 DVDs because uh, the Season 2 at this point is not out in Australia and obviously I can't get the American Blu-rays because they're region locked. If, however, you want to just see them effectively for free, if you have something called Hola Unblocker, you can watch them on U.S. Netflix. But it's I, all on Netflix Canada, too. Yeah, if you're in the U.S., you're in luck. You can watch it all on your TV for nothing. Um, uh, but if you're in the U.S., you can also have access to all the Blu-rays, uh, and you know, if you want to keep them. But obviously, you know, don't take our word for it. Just watch some. Like the first five episode uh, miniseries should convince you. If we haven't by now, after the, these two episodes. <laughs> And I, obviously, I can't vouch for the quality of uh, two and three, but if you stick with us, maybe there'll be another episode. I will vouch it's there. for it. We will va- me and Jerome will vouch for it. Okay, they uh, vouch for it. There'll be another there. episode. There's a German Blu-ray, season one. All right. Okay, so if That's... you want to get the yeah the German Blu-ray, how much is that? I think it's £30 on Amazon. Okay, there you go then, folks. For some reason, Germany gets it. Our prison Jared. colony buddies on the other <laughs> side of the world get it in Australia. America gets it. England gets the kind that basically turns up in the, the supermarket and that kids can say for the pocket money prices, Mommy, buy me that. Because they're once again positioning a show that really could appeal to grown-ups, uh, that really does deserve a dedicated full-season box set. They're positioning it just to children. And season two is just beginning to crawl out at £7 a, a, a disc. Sod that. I'll just get the R1. Well, I've got the R1 ones on the way. Thank you, Daniel Floyd, for being my middleman. Facilitator. Uh, yeah, the man. Any little moments in the show that were hilarious or brilliant or funny? or? Oh, one thing I did like. Yeah. I was going to make it. Um, Arachnid. Hmm? I thought she was like the predator. Because yeah. Yeah. she was going around collecting trophies yeah. of species. The, the music cues in, in that episode were straight out of Aliens, too. Yeah. Oh. If you actually also, watch, pay close attention, there's kind of a lot of nods to 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 films that you scratch your head going, I get it, because I've seen these films. <laughs> there's no way kids are getting reanimator predator aliens. Yeah. Ratchet mentions the Tesseract. Yes. yes. <laughs> this was a couple of years before uh, uh, the Captain America, where they first actually brought in uh, the Tesseract, and then uh, the Avengers the year after. But it's interesting watching Avengers again. It's Transformers done right, as in the the, the Michael Bay movies. Like, like so much of it traces back. Even the end. The end result of the Avengers is uh, the promise to the stars: "We will defend this Earth." That's the same shit Optimus says. <laughs> That's the thing. You know, the, they are unruly, and then Thanos decides, "Oh, unruly, huh?" Uh, so again, thank God for Transformers sort of laying it down so that other people can pick it up and do it right. It's just such a damn shame that they get rewarded for their shitty behavior. As I've said 15 million times these podcasts, I'm sorry for going up the same goddamn stretch. Can I point out? But they started it with their shitty behavior like a scratch record. I'm going to point this out. Who gave Michael Bay money recently? Actually, I can tell you who gave money to Michael Bay recently. It was a very kind listener. (laughs) <laughs> wasn't me. I didn't do it. He was only going to spend it on beer. I have. Uh, it would have been a bad choice. Yes. I have one disappointment with with being here. I, I'm, I'm very gracious for my second appearance. But Sharon, you didn't drop the mic this time. 
That's can't because... drop the mic twice in quick succession. <laughs> That's because there was one in between. Right. I couldn't. I couldn't be there for the last one. I thought for sure you had enough of a break. <laughs> Got to keep them waited, man. But that's because <laughs> Transformers Prime is better than a wank. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Very there true. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that'll do on that bombshell. Uh, we will see you guys next week. And rather than end it on a piece of music from Transformers Prime, I'm actually going to go to the music from the trailer for Fall of Cybertron. Anyone remember this one? Yes. Oh, vaguely. It's the bit where Bumblebee's been gravely injured and Optimus is cradling him in his arms and the the war on Cybertron is raging in slow motion and there's fire everywhere and Decepticons standing across the way and the camera's moving back and forth between them and Optimus... And the other Autobots are flagging in on their last legs. And there's this wonderful bit of music, which just Pucifer, it's called The Humbling River. And uh, I'm going to play the full version of this because uh, it's, it's just it's it's the sort of thing you'd never normally tie in with Transformers. Because of the bombast of, and, and the Linkin Park and, the, and uh, <laughs> all of the stuff that, that came with the... Uh, and I love Linkin Park, but... Um, uh, I, I didn't expect something like this to, to, to tie in. So, uh, uh, folks, after listening to this, go check out the trailer for Fall of Cybertron and just watch this video because it's quite effective. And maybe play the game. And, yeah, of course, play the Definitely game. Play the game. Uh, it uh, surprisingly excellent third-person Gears of War-style shooter in which turning into a car and driving the fuck away, especially during multiplayer, is actually a tactical option and and does work into the game. It's great. It was one of my Steam charity gifts. Nice. Nice. No, it's not so, so I, I mean, as in, I, I gave them a donation and I haven't played it yet. It doesn't be turning into a rage induced Tyrannosaurus Rex. That still kicks off. I haven't yeah. got to that bit yet. I hear it's uh, the finale, but uh, yeah, it is as but, every bit as awesome as you can think of it and more. So not a terribly depressing, disappointing Age of Extinction moment. <laughs> no, and doesn't involve any jokes about statutory rape. Ooh. God. That's a badge of quality right there. Neil, yeah. funny little thing, little side note, sorry. Um, you know the Rise of the Dark Spark? Yes. They literally copy and paste all of his animations into that, and it makes no sense. Because <laughs> he has a giant mace, but he's stabbing people. <laughs> Maces don't work that way! Blunt <laughs> instrument for smashing! Not stabbing. And, uh, By a sword and finesse. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I will be the Dread Pirate Roberts. So this is Pucifer with the Humbling River. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, handshake Complete. complete.
Together we'll cross the river